Good evening. I always wanted to do that. Oh, okay. Hey! Go, you have to, like, pr- pretend like you have a taffy in your mouth. Ah, go, go, good evening. Good evening. Nah. Everybody, <laughs> welcome back to The Iron List. This is a podcast where we do lists as selected by our patrons over at patreon.com slash Critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And, uh, William, I think this week is your show. Uh, a little, yeah, uh, you... maybe a bit more my jam, a little bit more my focus. Uh, I love me some Alfred Hitchcock. I grew up in Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. Alfred Hitchcock was one of my big introductions to the grander world of cinema outside whatever cartoons I was watching. Uh, so it was pretty exciting when our patrons decided to vote for this month mm-hmm. uh, our picks for the best Hitchcock movies. Um, Alfred Hitchcock is a British filmmaker who uh, had been working since the silent era up until the 1970s. Uh, he helped pioneer a lot of cinematic techniques, which we now take for granted. Uh, he helped define what we now think of as the thriller genre. He changed the entire horror genre with his movie Psycho. Uh, and uh, and most importantly, he was a... a a bit of a sicko when it came to macabre stuff. Yeah, he, he, he had, had a, a genuine interest in uh, death and horror. And he, and I think what his genius as a filmmaker was that he understood that audiences are interested in that stuff too, whether they're willing to admit it or not. And he had a really, really good... Like some like comic directors t- tickle your funny bone, mm. he tickled your creepy bone. Like he just, there's just something about, even whether, even in like, if it's like a sort of a lighthearted film, they always had like sort of a, a streak of the macabre, a little mm. malevolent sense of humor to them. Um, he made a ton of movies. Like a, like a seriously, he was incredibly prolific. He made three movies in 1927 alone. Yep. Well, the silent era was pretty fast back then. People were churning him yeah, out. But regardless, um, yeah, he, he, was an incredibly prolific, incredibly influential filmmaker. Uh, his film Strangers on a Train, which may or may not end up on my list, uh, was the first one that I saw, and it changed my kind of life. Uh, yeah. So uh, we are going to be talking about Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock has a long, long legacy in cinema. Mm. Um, and um, he's also a creep. Uh, like that, an actual creep in real that life. Is, that yeah. is very, um, very true. The, you can't um, deny it. The, uh, a lot of the voyeurism stuff that you saw in the movie Psycho evidently was a thing he did. A little bit more vertigo uh, than Psycho, but well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but regardless, yes. He, he, you, you look at his story, look at his life story, look at the people, uh, particularly in the production of films like uh, uh, The Birds or Marnie. Uh, yeah, he, he was... A creepy weirdo and if he were alive today I would not be supporting his work he is however quite dead he's been uh, uh, cremated his ashes were scattered in the Pacific Ocean there you go uh, so there's there's something to be said for that you know he's, he's been around long enough he had an impact and like a lot of people from the past deeply problematic we cannot extract that from their lives mm. but we also cannot pretend they didn't exist and that they didn't make their art 
Uh, if they were alive today, I wouldn't want to contribute to his legal bills. But again, he's not. The, so the, the funeral's we can, paid for. We already, can appreciate so, yeah. the work without you know getting into the stickiest of waters. So we will acknowledge this. We put an asterisk next to his name, mm-hmm. but we can now talk about his influence cinematically. Uh, and um, yeah, while we were putting together our lists, and every time we do a top ten list, Whitney does a top ten list, I do a top ten list, and we don't really talk too much about what we're going to put on our lists ahead of time. Um, I, you know, there, there's a choice to be made with Alfred Hitchcock. He made certain sort of, uh, uh, well-regarded all-time classics. Mm -hmm. You know, any, any list of the greatest movies ever made, Sight and Sound, AFI, you're going to have like three to five. One or two of them at least. I would say three to five bare minimum. But (laughs) I, I decided that because I've seen pretty much every Hitchcock movie, at least all of his sound films, I've seen, missed a few of the early stuff and like one or two in the middle. Um, uh-huh. I decided I'm going to follow my heart. And for the most part, I'm going to go with my favorites. Okay. Whether or not they're necessarily his all-time best, because I feel like we talk about his all-time best a lot. Mm. But even his weirder stuff, even his uh, smaller films, he had a lot of uh, cinematic experiments just to see if he could get away with it. Yeah, uh, They often come out really, really great and get a little bit overlooked. So I'm going to be focusing a little bit. There's still some ringers in there, but I'm focusing a little bit more on the films that get overlooked. Okay. Um, my list is, is a little bit... Um, a little bit... I th- probably a lot broader than yours is going to be. Mm. I don't have this kind of... Ig- First of all, I, I've seen fewer Hitchcock films than you have. Um, mm. Prior to, I think, 1940, I don't think I've seen any of his movies, um, which is, I know, understand that there's a lot of really good ones back yeah. there in the 1930s, and I just haven't had the opportunity to explore. Hitchcock is not... Uh, I, I admire Hitchcock more than I love Hitchcock. I've seen a lot of Hitchcock movies, and I like a, a great deal of them, but I wouldn't list him in uh, as one of my favorite filmmakers. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I, I, um, it's taken me a long time to appreciate a lot of Hitchcock. Uh, Why is that? Uh, a lot think? of his films are quite oblique hmm. in a way. They're, v- they're very mannered. Uh, he, he, he's very British, isn't he? Th- he's very British. A lot of, a lot of the, uh, melodrama is really, uh, subdued in his movies. Yeah, he, he, he and, often uh, makes films about the horrors that exist beneath polite society. Yeah. But in order to get there, you have to get through a lot of polite society. Right, yeah. right, right. And um, he, uh, I think it was Hitchcock who said something about how actors, like actors were cattle. And uh, the, the joke was that he had said actors were cattle. He preferred mm-hmm. to make films sort of technically operate yeah, entirely yeah. from well, a... Uh, 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 storyboards, storyboards. Yeah, and uh, the, the story goes that Carol Lombard who acted in a com- the one like wacky comedy he made Mr. and Mrs. Smith uh, heard this quote mm. and put up a pen at the studio for the actors to sit in ah is it like a cattle yeah. pen and uh, this is an apocryphal story but like or, or, no actually that's not apocryphal there's pictures of that by the way but mm. the, the actual dialogue might be apocryphal but the story I heard was he got there was like I said you were like cattle that's <laughs> 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 so what I meant and- and that's not to say that, you know, I, I don't uh, admire uh, a filmmaker who can be sort of cold and distant. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of uh, Stanley Kubrick. And, oh, very cold and, and distant. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, or Christopher Nolan. You know, mm-hmm. I like some of his movies, uh, even though he's a, a pretty cold and distant uh, director. Um, 
he he tends to come at filmmaking just like from a strictly technical standpoint, and yet mm-hmm. he's still trying to tell some like really lascivious stories. And I feel like something's getting lost in between those two elements of his filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is such a, a vague, faraway criticism of Alfred Hitchcock. I think it's just the one thing that uh, maybe keeps me from engaging with him the way a well, lot of people tend to. I think you're just describing his style and explaining yeah. why he doesn't really do it for you. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a critique so much as just here's what he does maybe it's not always successful uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he has been successful numerous times mm-hmm. and uh, there, there's at least like four movies on this list that I do adore mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not moved to explore Hitchcock hmm. m- much more deeply I feel like I, I feel like I've I've got a thumb on him I'm good you got you got the gist <laughs> yeah. you think you're figuring it out mm-hmm. well what is your well let me start with you then what uh, is your number 10 and again here's how we do this uh, all of these movies are recommendations it doesn't matter what order they're in we're just Tackling them in whatever order we choose. Mm-hmm. Except our number one. Our number one is our pick for the best or our favorite. Whichever we choose. Whichever, however we choose to handle this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, two through ten. Doesn't matter. See them all. Uh, but where do you want to start? What's, where do you want to start with? Um, I want to start with 1944's Lifeboat. Oh, uh, good pick. It's not on my list. Oh, okay. Um, this is... Uh, it's sympathetic towards the Germans during World War II. Mm-hmm. Which uh, was pretty is, is a, a bit of a sticking point, um, but it's about uh, a, it's about a lifeboat. It's set on a lifeboat and just a lifeboat. Uh, it's one of those uh, one setting uh, lo fi kind of movies. And I like these kinds of movies because you can always tell when a filmmaker is doing everything they can to make a really limited place seem kind of visually dynamic and interesting. Mm. Uh, sometimes uh, filmmakers can really pull it off. Sometimes they can't. Uh, I, there was a, a, a brief wave of these in the early 2000s that included films like Buried and Frozen and Open Water. where uh, Frozen, the, uh, the, the, the ski, ski lift ski movie, lift not movie, the animated Not the animated, yeah. yeah not, not the one with Let It Go. Yeah. Um, the, the other one just had a guy letting go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey! It's good yeah. stuff. Yeah, they end up jumping. Well, one guy ends up jumping, and it doesn't turn out well for him. Uh but yeah, I, I, I really appreciate what he's doing with the limited setting, and I like just sort of the mounting sense of desperation yeah. that goes along with this film. There's a lot of creepy shots of the boat just floating in the water, especially at night, and uh, yeah, it's really, really great. It's a really scary idea to be trapped in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. I mean, it's World War II, so, yeah. you know, you could just be bombed if someone sees you. Yeah. But also just, that, that some, so many movies have just made me absolutely terrified of that prospect. Yeah. You, you might as I well mean, be in that space. Space. If you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> in the, the 40s, uh, like if you're not like in a shipping lane, you're, like, you're fucked. The idea of like being in water so deep that there's there could be like a whale directly beneath you that terrifies the that hell out of me. That scares the shit out yeah. of me. There could be a Cthulhu under there for all we fucking know. There are giant mm. squids. There could be like mm. sharks. Anything. It's weird because I love the water. I really do. I love oh, the yeah, beach. Yeah. I love swimming. I love snorkeling. I'm also absolutely terrified of it. I used to have nightmares about tidal waves and mm. when the tidal wave would recede the the water would recede and we'd see like for miles underground all of these gigantic like lobster creatures and everything it just mm. there's a whole fucking galaxy under there and it's <laughs> full of horrifying things that want to kill us yeah, but, um, but yeah it scares the, the, it, and I think and I think Hitchcock understands this like it's yeah, actually he, like uh, a, a scary prospect Hitchcock was very keen on trying to find real world human fears uh, yes, yes, he was. A, a lot of his own fears are in his movies he was afraid of uh, 
uh, police officers. Mm. Authority, uh, really. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's there's a lot of like e- evil cops and uh, you know yeah, authority figures chasing after protagonists yeah. in his movies. Uh, this all stems from a, a real story where I think it was his father uh, took him to uh, a prison one day when he was a boy and uh, to, to sort of like scare him straight. It's like you, you, uh, if, if you misbehave, you'll end up in this prison and they locked him in the prison and they walked away. And I, I don't remember the exact time he was left there, if it was just a couple hours or if it was overnight, but yeah, th- I, that sort of marked him. He was really scarred by that experience. Mm. But uh, this is about authority mm. figures, all of them, and how they essentially just go mad in a desperate situation, and they start yeah. like killing each other and, and berating each other. They go insane when drink when they're drinking uh, seawater. I remember yeah. there was a bit in this movie where they talk about, uh, in order to sort of stay alert, taking energy pills. Oh yeah, and it didn't occur to me until recently that that's that's meth. Yeah, more um, or less, yeah. Uh, Nazi soldiers were given uh, uh, uppers. In, mm-hmm. On the battlefield, you know, to sort of keep their mania at a high ebb, and uh, that, yeah. that's not discussed uh, in too many uh, history books. I think it's worth noting that uh, when you describe this movie as being sympathetic to the Germans, I don't. Mm. It's not sympathetic to the German cause, but it has a German character in it mm. who is portrayed as intelligent and capable, and mm. arguably, you know, the most capable of surviving and saving people at the time. Yeah. D- daring I think Hitchcock, daring in 1944. Well, I think what's happening in that really is, I think Hitchcock is talking about how scared we're talking, talking about, Oh, we're better than them. Hmm. What if we're not? Hmm. What if like, they're actually like, I mean, they're, they're monsters, but what if they're intelligent and yeah. what if they're capable? Like, isn't that scarier? And I think that's what he's getting at here. Mm. But um, yeah, no, I vote kicks ass. I got nothing against life, but I just didn't make my top 10. All right. uh, my top 10 is actually one I only just recently watched. And for some reason, the Hitchcock has a few films that are considered like, oh, you don't really have to see those. <laughs> you know, you don't, really have, to, Hitchcock, you don't really have to yeah. see Topaz. And actually, I can say from his experience, no, you don't. But like, Topaz did not make my list. <laughs> Really don't like that movie, uh, but so um, Topaz is pretty widely regarded as his worst film. It's it's up there, I yeah. think. Uh, Topaz is a story about the espionage and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you think that'd be really exciting, but uh, there's nothing really human to latch on to. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock is usually very very good about getting us to sympathize with protagonists and make us feel like we, the audience, could have just wound up in this movie without intending to and that's not the case with topaz it's very very much at arm's reach uh it just never really connects um but i digress uh but this is a movie i only just recently saw because everyone told me i didn't have to see it i finally saw it it kicks ass (laughs) uh it's a film called jamaica inn oh okay Um, jamaica inn is based on a novel by daphne du maurier who had also wrote the birds and rebecca which won the academy Award for best picture Mm. also directed by hitchcock both of those films um jamaica inn does not take place in jamaica Jamaica Inn is a British story about pirates. Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> made a pirate movie, and hardly anyone really talks about it, and that's a shame because it's cool. Uh, Marina Hera, in one of her first big roles, uh, she uh, she's visiting a relative. Her relative lives at a place called Jamaica Inn. It's an inn uh, by the sea in... Um, not oh, I'm trying to think of, like no, not it's not in Jamaica. Shut up. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's like the the, the Cornish coast, mm. and um, her relative is in a really shitty relationship. She get walks in. It's very very clear that she's in an abusive relationship, and she's not comfortable, and she mm. can't talk. 
It also becomes abundantly clear that the Jamaica Inn is where the pirates go. And pirates in this story, what they do is they don't like, you know, put on their, their eye patches and their parrots and go, Rawr! what they do is they make sure that boats crash along the coast, kill everybody and take the cargo. They don't even have to leave the coast. Hmm. Um, it's something just ex- it's something extra sleazy if you don't even have to leave your home. <laughs> like, there's just something about that. It's just, and, it, and I think that's, Hitchcock knows, that's lazy piracy. Well, it, it's right not there. even just lazy. I think Hitchcock knows there's something just that's just extra. Like there's nothing like there's nothing. There's no dashing about it. There's nothing there's heroic. No, 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 yeah, wit or cleverness. No, no, to... it's it's just demonic actually. Mm-hmm. And so she has been caught up in this uh, horrible scheme, and she tries to talk to. Uh, the local uh, uh, rich guy in charge, uh, played by, of course, the inimitable Charles Lawton, who, he's Charles Lawton, nearly needless to say, he's maybe a bit more involved than we think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very isolated movie. It feels isolated. It's very claustrophobic in a lot of ways. This woman is completely trapped in the situation that she just blustered into, and she had no way of knowing that. She was just like, oh, yeah, a family members died and everything, and everything sucks, and... <sighs> I'm in a pirate movie, aren't I? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's great. It's shot like very atmospherically. Charles Lawton is just fucking phenomenal. And it's weird that he didn't work with Hitchcock more than he did. And a lot of the movies he worked with Hitchcock on are not like the famous ones, like the mm. Paradine case, which is also not good. Um, but I, I uh, think because Charles Lawton was maybe too big a presence. We talked about oh, how yeah. Hitchcock was... Uh, like he he did work with certain actors uh, uh, multiple times, like Jimmy Stewart's and and mm-hmm. many of his films, um, uh, and others besides. But uh, he, uh, he he Jimmy Stewart is the kind of actor who can sort of serve the material, whereas Charles Lawton is a big actor that whatever mm-hmm. he appears in it becomes the Charles Lawton show. Yeah. And I think well, that's the kind of actor Hitchcock wasn't really he fond was, of working with. Lawton was a co-producer on this movie mm-hmm. and he gave himself the juiciest part. And then he mm-hmm. insisted that the, that the part be larger. And so as a result, <laughs> the, uh, you know, so the, I'm, I'm the, sure the two of them, butt heads. they, they clashed a lot. Yeah. Apparently I'm amazed they work together again afterwards. But uh, in any case, Jamaica Inn is deeply underappreciated in my estimation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I highly enjoy it. And I hope even more people see it because it doesn't get talked about enough and it's really mm-hmm. cool. Uh, what's your next pick? Uh, my next pick is Dial M for Murder. Okay. Uh, from 1954. I haven't seen it in 3D. I've yeah. only seen it on home video. Neither um, have I. I've also. This is also uh, not on my list. I I um maybe I'm a little bit of a sicko myself. You are. But there's <laughs> when I'm watching a movie about heroes and villains or like good guys and bad guys and the bad guys are up to something or have they have a scheme. Part of me wants to see the bad guy succeed. I want to mm-hmm. see how what would happen. If How, they got like what, their scheme what, was just so clever, it, like if yeah. they got away with it, like it actually worked. It's like, and what would that movie be saying if they just did it? And occasionally, like, there are there are movies like that. Uh, very occasionally, very, very but, yeah. devious film noirs sometimes. Sorry, like something like Gone Girl. You know, it's like yeah. it's about how how the scheme works. Yeah, I don't. I, don't, yeah. I, I could give you more examples, but I don't want to spoil them. But like, well, like, yeah, I yeah, guess so. It's, that would suck. But like Gone Girl is one where it's, it's bleak. You'll know that, mm. like, yeah, mm. without and, giving and away what happens. I, I, I haven't said anything about the plot of Gone Girl. No, no, just, just that it's it's about a scheme that goes well, more or less well. More well, more or less well. Yeah, but it works out. Well, well, it works out for the villains. Yeah, I, I. 
I can't, or like the talented Mr. Ripley is another. Oh one. yeah, that's a great one. Uh, All the Ripley. Have you ever seen uh, Ripley's Game? With I haven't. I heard it's really good. Though. That's under. Mm. John Malkovich plays Ripley, the character that Matt Damon yeah. played in uh, Talented Mr. Ripley, but like older when he's like comfortable with who he is. Mm. It's, it's it's a really good, really creepy movie. I love that movie. <laughs> um, Dialem for Murder is about uh, a, a man who discovers that his wife is having an affair with a young American. And he concocts this really elaborate scheme to have uh, have them killed. Yeah. And the scheme doesn't work out quite as planned, but it still kind of works out in a way. It, it's the, like half the movie is mm. him planning the scheme. Yeah. And going through in in absolute like un, so much detail that when you watch the first time I watched this movie, which actually wasn't that long ago. First time I watch this movie, I'm watching the scheme. I'm like, how could this scheme go wrong? It seems like he's thought out everything. And then, of course, once the scheme gets set in motion, everything goes everything wrong. Everything goes Some, wrong. Somehow, uh, but, everything manages to go wrong. And, uh, uh, you know, because this this the, these movies operate this way, he does get his comeuppance in the end. Uh, yeah, but, most, of his, most of Hitchcock's movies were made during the production code. That was a So, yeah, he could, yeah. Could, couldn't get away with it. Uh, in fact, it's yeah. I don't think any of Hitchcock's movies have the bad guys getting away. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> Not entirely, no. No. Yeah. Yeah, even if they survive, there's like some blot on their soul from yeah, the, for the remainder. Yeah. Uh but this is one that was a lot of it is just the process of him planning this perfect crime. If it, things go wrong, but him thinking fast on his feet and covering up that crime. And I want to, I want to see him get away with it. It's, <laughs> it's so insidious and, in the way it gets us on the murderer's side. It helps that the, the tension is, Oh God, is he going to get caught? Oh, he yeah. didn't get caught. Thank goodness. Wait a minute. He committed a horrible crime. It helps that the victims in this movie, like the, the, yeah. the, the, the wife and the person she's having an affair with, they're not that interesting. Mm. There's something really insidious about that, about like making like the victims of this incredibly elaborate plot. Again, I don't wish them ill. They're not bad people or anything like that. But, but they're also way less interesting them, than yeah. the villain. And so you're watching it. And it's just like, I, I'm just not invested in them. Mm. I'm invested in the plot. <laughs> the plot is actually really mm. gripping in Dial M for Murder. Um, this is a good movie. I like this movie a lot. I, it's, um, I think maybe if I'd seen it when I was younger... It might have grabbed me a bit more, but I've just seen if Hitchcock plays with the theme about people planning the perfect murder. In fact, I got a couple on my list mm. uh, a lot in his career. I think it's something that he identifies with because as a storyteller, someone who tells stories about murder, that's a lot of his life. Yeah. Just sitting at a dinner table going, oh, but what if we killed them with cyanide and milk? That kind of thing, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think it connects. I think this is a, this is a very, very good pop boiler. It's a little stagey. Feels a bit like a play, uh, but it is very, very good. I like this one a lot. Um, cool. Uh, I'm gonna actually gonna. Uh, there, there's a reminds me of something in another movie. Actually, have you seen Shadow of a Doubt? I have not seen Shadow of a Doubt. This was this was rather famously allegedly Alfred Hitchcock's favorite of his own movies. Okay, uh, and it's easy to see why this movie shreds. <laughs> this movie is really, really good, and it's another one that just doesn't get enough credit. I think. Um, so, uh, Shadow of a Doubt stars Teresa Wright as a young woman uh, whose uncle, her favorite uncle. I like Teresa Wright. She's amazing. Yeah. Teresa Wright has a favorite uncle. She's named after him. They're incredibly close. Uh, he travels a lot, and every time he comes back, he gives her presents. He's played by Joseph Cotton, and he has come back to town 
Uh, and uh, she's getting older and she's a little, you know, she's fawning over him. She's like, she just thinks he's the bee's knees. Uh, problem is, he's a serial killer. <laughs> and when she starts realizing, she starts putting together the, the clues that her favorite human being in the world is a monster. She doesn't know what to do with that. She loves him mm-hmm. and she doesn't want to betray his trust, but she's also increasingly terrified of him. He doesn't want to kill her. But he will if he has to. And nobody really is ready to believe her. So she's in this completely trapped state. And it's absolutely just unbelievably terrifying and riveting. Teresa Wright's amazing. Joseph Cotton doesn't get to play creepy enough, honestly, Mm -hmm. if you ask me. He's really, really good in it. Uh, But what what reminded me of uh, Dylan for Murder was uh, her father uh, is, throughout the whole movie, while she is like... Trapped in the reality of murder mm. Her father spends like The entire movie Like chatting with his best friend Trying to plan The perfect murder Right uh, So it's Henry Travers And Hume Cronin uh, And they're just They're just playing Oh yes What if we killed him like this No 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 The police would discover that Because they have those chemicals now And they know When, the, <laughs> when, they, when you've tried to burn away Someone's stuff with acids Oh okay Never never mind Meanwhile Teresa Wright's just like Scratching off the fucking table With her fingernails It's like It's really fucking great um, I love this movie This movie is I think of all of Hitchcock's like I, I guess the suburbs Wouldn't be the right way to call it But like his small town horrors Mm. For people who feel like they're safe in their intimate family environments, you know, everyone's everyone's cozy, mm. but there are nightmares here, and I just feel like it's it it really translates well. It's aged very very well. And, okay, um, it's it's excellent. Nice. So uh, yeah, right. one of the cool things about uh, doing an Iron List where we uh, haven't both seen all the movies mm. is that uh, we can move a little bit more quickly, can't we? That's true. <laughs> I, I have nothing to, to a, contribute. It doesn't um, need to be a three hour episode. Yeah, uh, I know some people like them. But it's 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 after midnight and we're tired. <laughs> I have a, a, a cup here, a little travel mug full nice. of some very nice tea. I have a cup here, water, so I <laughs> might get tired. Oh, there you go. Right, anyway, what's your next pick? Uh, this is such a gimme. Uh, this was Hitchcock's big blockbuster. It's North by Northwest. It's a great film. Uh, it, it's it makes no sense none none at all and uh, this is a uh, innocent man on the run movie this was something that he was very fond of uh you know, i think he had a this is goes to his fear of authority figures he was afraid afraid of being falsely accused and then pursued by law enforcement in right. this case Cary grant playing himself uh once again that's kind of his shtick he plays a guy who um uh, early in the movie, uh, at first he's, there's like this, uh, car crash that he survives. And then, uh, later on in the movie, uh, he's, he works for the UN and later in the movie, he's found, uh, standing over somebody who's just been stabbed. He picks up the knife and wouldn't you know it? Somebody enters the room at just the wrong time. And he says, it's not what it looks like. And then they take a photograph and it's on the cover of every newspaper. Yeah, in so the he's country. got, he's holding a bloody knife over a stab. When someone corpse. kills someone in front of you, remember the first thing you do is grab the murder weapon and look around all guilty like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> What's this? Oh, that's a Brazilian dagger. Whoops! Uh, <laughs> and uh, and from there he goes on the run, and uh, the, the the plot reveals itself to be far more complicated. Uh, there's bad guys after him. Yeah, well, uh, it, it starts off so banal because it just mm. basically boils down to is there's a there's a uh, uh, there's a spy named Mister Kaplan, and uh, the the villains who have this whole plot to kill this guy and do all this stuff and. Uh, 
they know that Mr. Kaplan is after them. Mm. So they go to the hotel where Mr. Kaplan is allegedly staying and they page Mr. Kaplan. And at that point, Cary Grant, whose name is not even Kaplan, just happens right. to talk to like the bellhop and say, uh, excuse me. And the spies think that that's George Kaplan. And they refuse to believe he's not, no matter how many times he tells them. So now he's like, well, fuck, I guess I have to be George Kaplan for a while. And then it turns out there's no George Kaplan. There's, there's no character. There's no character named George Kaplan in they the movie. They tell you this really early in the movie, and the CIA is just like, well, yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. We made up the spy as like a red herring to keep like the, the villains like off kilter and, and think that someone's after them, so our actual shenanigans are, mm-hmm. are under the radar. Uh, and now they think this guy's Kaplan? Oh. Hmm. <laughs> Sucks to be him. And that's it. <laughs> that's all that's it. Hmm. They're going to do nothing about it. Uh, th- this is the film that has the notorious crop duster scene. Uh, Makes no, where, sense. Where, no, <laughs> well, how, how is that going to hurt a guy? Well, they, like, Cary Grant is like on the in the middle of the road, the middle of nowhere, yeah. next to some cornfields, and, and, and evidently, a, like the crop duster took off long before he arrived. Yeah, so, and it's been I, I guess circling because yeah. we see the plane approaching from the distance. Yeah. It's a great piece of filming. Oh, it's gorgeous, and it, it, yeah. it's like really, and you see it in the distance, and like oh, and then you realize it's getting closer, and it's getting really close. And it's going to, like, mow him down, like, try to get him with the propellers, which would kill the pilot, probably. It would probably, like, destroy the plane. It makes no sense. Mm. This movie is actually, it's weird that it's considered this, like, classic of blockbuster cinema because it's actually deconstructing a lot of the stuff that Hitchcock kind of helped invent, this man-on-the-run story. Um, He'd done a bunch of things by the time Northway Northwest came out. The 39 Steps was a gigantic smash hit. Uh, Saboteur is really, really fun. Um... He did Young and Innocent, which isn't very good, if you ask me. But um, by this point, I think he just was just wanting to, like, take the piss out of it. And, like, it's going to be a whole wrong man thing, but the plot makes no sense. It's absolutely absurd. Uh, and uh, But we're going to still do all the action bits anyway. And then they kind of freed him uh, hmm. to do whatever. Right. Um, it's fun. It's, it's great. It's fun, and I love the way it ends because mm. it's it kind of skips the ending. Yeah, a little uh, bit. The, the climax of this movie is on the face of Mount Rushmore, and there's, you know, people hanging off of giant carved noses. And uh, Ava Marie Saint is is the damsel in distress. She's saying, help, 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 grab me, grab me. And then there's a hard edit to the epilogue. It's like, help me, help me, hold me, hold me. And they've gotten away, and they're <laughs> already... Do we need to see him grab her? We know what happens. It's the no. movie. That's the point. He, we don't. He takes away that moment. It's I, a, I, such a meta joke. It's I, so great. And I love that. I yeah. love that we don't. We don't need to see that stuff. Uh, you know, he goes for this gigantic climax and then just cuts it short. Uh, mm-hmm. My ending. The ending is my, one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah. It is just a. Th- it's a th- a big dumb thrill ride, but it's done so exceptionally well that I kind of have a weakness for it uh, i love it too i love it too uh my next pick is a is actually another very cheerful thriller um i'm really 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 still to this day mad at a movie called this means war uh it stars reese witherspoon and chris oh, yeah. Pine and tom hardy and, and she she actually she's torn romantically between the two of them and she ends up hmm. picking to, to your eye the wrong one I, that's I that's well that's not that 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 does suck but that's not why i'm mad at this All movie right. Uh, the, but the gag of the movie is they're both spies. They like work together, they're CIA agents, mm-hmm. and they use their spy know-how to sort of get in each other's way and sort of ruin each other's chances at being with Reese Witherspoon. Whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a high-concept comedy. But um, when Reese Witherspoon meets Chris Pine, she meets him at a video store. 
and they talk about Alfred Hitchcock, and I believe he refers to the Lady Vanishes as Lesser Hitchcock. Hmm. Uh, fuck you. <laughs> That's it. She's not going with you, Chris Pine. I lost all interest in Chris Pine as a romantic interest. Like, that's gone. Like, it's just like, okay. He, he does Thank still... Thank you. Uh, you can pay for your own dinner. He, he does, <laughs> and I will go home. He does still look like Chris Pond. And that's what got me to dinner. But then, <laughs> but then he said what he said about the lady vanishes and he's and we're going Dutch. Okay? That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, I digress. Anyway, the lady vanishes is wonderful. Uh, it starts off at this... Um, uh, this, like, uh, this inn in the middle of nowhere. And everyone's uh, getting ready to go on a train the next day. And uh, it's about a young uh, debutante. She's about to get married, but she doesn't want to. Mm. She's a she's a modern woman. She's tired of this arranged marriage crap, but she's got to do it. Um, she ends up uh, falling in quirky hate uh, with uh, the wonderful Michael Redgrave, uh, who plays a musician. Mm. Uh, and, and they they just detest each other, so you know they're gonna fuck. And uh, <laughs> and uh, she ends up befriending a very kindly old woman, and they all get on the train, and the old woman vanishes in the moving train. No one knows what happens to her. But so it wasn't just a clever title. No, no. But actually, but it, but here's but here's the thing though. Everyone on the train saw this old woman. Everyone on the train. As we've seen at the beginning of the movie, is in a rush to get home. They need for one reason or another. They have mm. I'm in the middle of an affair and I have to get home before my wife finds out. I we we have tickets to the game or whatever. Like someone, mm. they, there's always something. It's like a twelve finger men scenario. So when this so when this young woman says, "I would please tell me," I know you saw her. Like you, she picked up your butter knife when it dropped. Would you please just tell the people that this old lady was on the train because we can't find her? Mm. And every single person says. I have no idea what you're talking about. And it seems like it's a weird conspiracy, but everyone's just so self-centered that it turns into one by accident. And so it's all about how people are selfish assholes and they're, they're actually not getting engaged. And it's actually a a metaphor for not wanting to get into world war two movies in the late thirties. It's about how people just were totally, we don't want to get involved. We have our own shit. But by the end of it, when it turns out there's a whole spy ring involved in shit, and everyone's dragged into it anyway, they all come to represent like all of England getting their shit together and actually doing a good job of fighting the Nazis. Okay. So it ends up being like really heroic and fun. the The two romantic leads are a delight. Uh, it's very witty. Uh, it's very clever. It's uh, it's set in a single location, but it doesn't feel really stagey. There's a lot of stuff that they really couldn't mm-hmm. quite do on the stage. So it, it's a it's a hoot. And I just really, really love it. It's it's one of his like just just his frothier, more comedic thrillers, and I hope more people watch it. Alright. All right, what's your next one? Uh, um my next one we talked about recently on Only the Best. Uh it, it is Suspicion, another Cary Grant film. Interesting uh, choice. Uh I like everything about Suspicion except the end. Yeah, it uh, kind of pops out a bit at the end. Yeah, the, uh, again, the, the bad guys can't get away with doing bad stuff. They don't have unhappy endings. And I, you can tell that these are like studio mandates. Yeah, the movie is clearly heading towards mm. the darkest possible ending. Yeah. And then it just, it literally veers off in another direction yeah. in the last like 60 seconds. Uh, but, but, it, Car- but it's a cool movie until then, yeah. Yeah, Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine uh, get married without knowing each other terribly well. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's a gadabout and she's like a wealthy heiress. Yeah. She, yeah. yeah. She, she, I think she's just inherited a fortune and mm. she, uh, you know, 
he well, kind she of, will when her parents die. Where her parents, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, their romance is is um, like it's very fast. Well, run, well, yeah. like they, but, they but meet and they get married within a week or something. But like but that, yeah. uh, but they're very they're very into each other. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, Cary Grant is very charming. But then of course we learn that he is actually uh, in in severe debt. He doesn't mm-hmm. have any money whatsoever, and. He, you know, bemoans this and he keeps this from her because he's a little bit ashamed. Or does he have a secret plot to murder her and mm-hmm. inherit her fortune? And she becomes and increasingly, increasingly swept up in uh, suspicion. Full of suspicion. And, um, and uh, a recurring motif is the glass of milk. He serves to her every night and he, yeah. she's convinced that he might be poisoning her. Um, there was yeah. a, a famous shot where Cary Grant is carrying a, a glass of milk on a tray and Hitchcock put a light inside the glass to uh, to make it seem brighter and yeah. whiter, and and in black and white, it's like it's not quite as noticeable as it would be in mm-hmm. color, but it just it's a little ethereal and spooky. Yeah, and it's so good. Um, Kurt Grant is really creepy in this movie. Yeah, he's yeah, not he's, used to being he's, creepy. Uh, he's usually the hero, but like he's really well, you really I believe was, he could kill I was somebody. gonna I was gonna bring that up because Cary Grant, you know, in North by Northwest, he's a little bit more of a, a sort of a befuddled hero type. Mm-hmm. Like he's not not a hero, but he's clearly like not up to anything. Untoward. He's the protagonist. He hasn't yeah. done anything wrong, but he's also just kind of a drunk. <laughs> just, oh yeah, who just sort of stumbled into something by accident. <laughs> oh oh man, you know who would have been great in North by Northwest? Dean Martin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that was still, actually yeah. Actually, would have been just as good a movie, I think. Yeah. You would have been good in that movie. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, Cary Grant, um, Hitchcock didn't have, like, charmers in his movie unless there was something going, something else besides going on with them. And Cary Grant was a charmer, but you could tell he was a bit of a creep. And I get that vibe from Cary Grant in a lot of his movies, quite frankly. Uh, not that... Cary Grant was a creep or he's playing creepy characters, but I think he knew to sort of undercut his charm with a little mm-hmm. bit of caddishness. Yeah. So even in sort of his, his more notoriously lighthearted movies that there's like a little twinge of menace lurking underneath his, his performances. And I feel mm. like Hitchcock keyed into that. Yeah. And he, he knows that there's something out. wrong yeah. about Cary Grant. Mm. Yeah. Which is and weird because he also works a lot with James Stewart. And there was really only one time mm. where he told you there's something deeply wrong with James Stewart and it's uh, vertigo. It just feels icky. It's, that it's movie. yeah. Cause t- well, James Stewart I, I, really doesn't have that evil in his, most of his mm. performances, but Cary Grant a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, a little bit. Uh, I, I, I was reminded of, of, of all films of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love, which okay. is a film that stars uh, Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler, uh, he, he's a comedian. He's you know, Prior to that, he had played a lot of really kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, idiot roles. And, uh, mm. you know, just sort of... Affable while, buffoons. I, I, yeah, buffoons. Often with an anger could, issue. Yeah. Well, and th- that's what I was going to say is there is always a little bit of menace to Adam Sandler's characters. When he got really mad, he'd sort of scream in this really uh, wrathful kind of way. Here comes Paul Thomas Anderson and say, mm. we're going to drop away all of the, the buffoonery and focus on that rage. And he made this like really kind of timid character who actually has this hugely uh, horrible temper lurking underneath and he destroys things. Uh, that's what Hitchcock is doing with Cary Grant in Suspicion. I think yeah. that's what I admire most about Suspicion. He's making this fellow who is known to be sort of a movie charmer into a suspicious character. Yeah. Somebody that even the audience is suspicious of. And wouldn't you know it, 
from what I understand, the an original draft actually has him doing some horrible things at the end of the movie. It is confirmed Whereas, in one version of the, the story. Um, yeah. That, but then studio notes the actual version yeah. we got uh it does feel like it a just cop out. out it's yeah. it's a cop and it's good and, and it changed what bothers me about it and it's one of the reasons why it doesn't make my list is it kind of changes the meaning of the movie mm. from here's someone who saw the truth and nobody believed them to here's somebody who was given to flights of fancy and yeah, it just it, it completely it puts changes it all the character. back on Joan Fontaine. It, it yeah. completely changes the character and i think that's a bit it's still good for that but i'm less interested in that as a story uh, but they're great, and the buildup is so fucking intense that it's amazing, and I love it. Um, I'm going to talk about another movie that's very much about uh, uh, sort of families torn apart by emotion, and it's another movie that is generally considered one of Hitchcock's worst movies, but I think it's great. Hmm. Under Capricorn. I don't even know Under Capricorn. Yeah, it's Tell largely it. forgotten. It was made for a production company that didn't last very long. It was one of his first... Uh, Color Productions. It stars Joseph Cotton and Ingmar and uh, Ingmar Ingrid Bergman. Mm-hmm. Different, very different people. Um, but uh, it takes place in Australia in the early nineteenth uh, uh, century. Okay, uh, this is back when it was uh, you know just starting to sort of boom. Uh, England was sending a lot of their convicts there. You're, you're going to correct me right away. Is this Hitchcock's only period piece? Oh, he didn't. Mm, no, because he did. He did a couple of like early like dramas. Okay. Um, he did a biopic of like the Strauss family. Oh, okay. So yeah. like he done some stuff, but it's very uncommon. Mm. Um, so uh, it's about a young man who is traveling to Australia. Uh, his uncle or relative or someone is uh, a bigwig there, a governor. Uh, and he gets wrapped up in uh, uh, a couple played mm. by Joseph Cotton and Ingrid Bergman. Uh, Joseph Cotton was a criminal. He was uh, uh, arrested for murder. Mm. And he went to Australia. He served his time. And he has made something of himself. But his reputation is forever tainted. And he is mm. married to a woman played by Ingrid Bergman who was somehow connected to this horrible tragedy in their past. And she is incredibly uh, mentally ill. She's going through something really, really terrible. And she will not speak of what it is. She will not explain what is going on, why uh, she is very fragile. Mm. Uh, and he just, he insinuates himself into their lives and tries to like figure out the, the source of their... Uh, he tries to solve the mystery of how they became who they became. And so much of this movie is just people who are deeply ashamed of who they are and what they've done. Mm. Uh, and they are incapable of believing that they deserve better. Like my tortured existence is what I deserve and I will make the most of it. But by God, this is, this is it. And I'm not mm. even going to try. And it's deeply mm. tragic. Uh, Hitchcock shoots much like a uh, rope, but more ambitious. He shoots a lot of the movie in like nine minute takes Oh wow! Okay, and this is but this is like gliding through an estate and shit. Like this is actually Ooh, a little okay. bit more ambitious, like Russian arc kind of stuff. Well, not that elaborate, but yes, like certainly mm. more elaborate. Um, and uh, it's it's very exciting. It's got that wonderful like sort of ballroom uh, kind of mentality. It's uh, but at the but at the heart of it, there is a murder mystery, 
and it's really excellent. Ingmar, uh, Ing, I keep wanting to say Ingmar Bergman. What the fuck is wrong with me? Ingrid uh, I'm, I, Bergman. I'm wearing an Ingmar You're literally Bergman, wearing yeah. an Ingmar Bergman t-shirt. I have a t-shirt that says Ingmar Bergman. You're, so you're incepting probably just me. looking at my chest. Oh, God, it's, a, it's like a Freudian slide. It's like, uh, well, uh That is literally what's happening. I can totally tell you. Well, but, well, hold that thought because that's actually a great segue into my next just, one. Just yeah. real fast, Ingrid Bergman is hmm. absolutely phenomenal in this movie. Like, she's... Typically gets a lot of credit for like some of her other Hitchcock performances, especially Notorious, which is also great. Uh, she's really, really good in this. I think this movie is long overdue for a reevaluation. The problem is it's not really readily available. Yeah, uh, it's, it that's is, a big issue with a lot of. I just films checked. From this uh, I just checked to JustWatch.com. I know not all of our listeners are in America, and I know not all streaming services have the same availability or the same content throughout the world. No. Uh, but uh, currently, according to uh, JustWatch.com. It is currently available uh, at a streaming service called IndieFlix. Um, IndieFlix. IndieFlix. Uh, I'm unfamiliar with it, but there you go. Allegedly, it's there mm. right now. Uh, absolutely worth checking out. I really, 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 maybe really, really happy if this film got reappreciated. So okay. just a heads up. All right, what's your next one? Uh, well, speaking of uh, in- incepting people and delving into people's minds, my next film is Spellbound. That's a fun uh, one. I-, I like Spellbound because it's scary yeah it's the one one of the few hitchcock movies that actually frightens me uh and it's because it has like this nightmarish almost eraser head like quality to it and Mm -hmm. and not just the dream sequence which i adore yeah Um, designed by salvador Salvador it's really weird yeah Um, but as it should be like faceless people and melting wheels and eyeball like Mm -hmm. walls of eyeballs uh yeah but it this is about uh psychology it's about psychiatrists um it's um Gregory Peck plays a young doctor who has just started working at uh, the hospital where uh, Ingrid Bergman is working. Uh, they fall in love immediately, and they start to reveal sort of their own um, uh, psychological uh, issues that they've sort of been wrestling with themselves. She is the one who has a very bizarre phobia of parallel lines. I think that's no. A, he does, doesn't he? Isn't it him that? No, the, the, he, he has amnesia, isn't it? No, no, because no, 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 because she sees him doing it over like he'll see like oh, right. he'll see like a fork like drag across a. a, a oh, that's thing. right. Yeah, yeah. So like, so Sorry, she's witnessing his phobia. Oh, so okay. like, I can see you got that. Yeah, I can see you remember that. I, I apologize. Yeah, well, but those those sorts of phobias are are explored, and a lot of uh, a lot of different psychological issues are actually discussed yeah. a little bit openly. Not with he's, he's repressed a lot of memories, yeah, and they're well, coming out in weird ways. Yeah, yeah. He, he has amnesia. He uh, he ends up uh, running off and checking into a hotel, and there's a lot of psychoanalysis, and yeah. um, which is pretty novel in cinema at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's. So we've talked about films like uh, like Brian De Palma's Sisters, for instance, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of movies that deal with things like multiple personality disorder in a comic book sort of way. The yeah, actual no truth, actual connection to reality yeah, whatsoever. If, if, yeah. if you want to know about like actual uh, psychological conditions, don't watch movies for information. No. They'll, they're never correct. They're all, they're all, screenwriters and uh, frankly a lot of storytellers, as soon as they learn a new factoid, they're like, how can I make this about murder? Yeah, like, how, how can this be a thriller? Yeah, uh, and, that's never, yeah. and that's usually doesn't mean we're strictly adhering to the reality of the thing or that yeah, we have any sympathy for the people who are enduring 
so, whatever they're talking about. It's, sometimes it's it, pretty sleazy. Sometimes it's time. done to great effects, like yeah. in uh, Shyamalan's movie Split. It's like okay, this is a comic book version of. Multiple oh, it's so wild! Like yeah. I'm willing. It's, it's a Batman movie. It's like yeah, a Batman yeah, villain. Like, I'm, like I'm willing to. I'm, I have I, a personality disorder that makes me strong and gives me superpowers, and I can climb up walls and shit. It's, it's, it's like, irresponsible, but by the end of the movie, I'm being a little forgiving because they know it. I just wish they'd said so right at the beginning, <laughs> because otherwise, I'm watching this yeah. and I'm just like, you've no idea what you're fucking talking Gosh. about. Me- meanwhile, one of the more grievous offenses in recent years was uh, Shane Black's The Predator, uh, where yeah. there, there's there's an autistic child, but it, it's it's argued in dialogue in that movie that uh, autism is is indeed like by itself a superpower. Yeah, it's like the next evolution in human mind or something. It's like yeah, it's, it gives it's such short shrift to actual autism. It, it's dehumanizing in the opposite direction. Like you're trying to make it so positive that you're also you're you're also you're, fucking up. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I feel like Spellbound at least for a film made in the 1940s, yeah. uh, is really sensitive and is actually taking a little bit of care to try to get some details right. It's very sympathetic, I yeah, think. And that's yeah. something that's, that's something that isn't always sympathetic. <laughs> well, he, and, you know, he, I think he's interested in, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, like aberrant people, uh, people who are living on the outside in mm. one degree or another. Well, once you, uh, Hitchcock's interested in people who have made often the conscience, mm. sorry, the conscious decision to murder yeah to yeah. them and it feels logical so so he's you know? but i think he's interested in that sort of state of mind and yeah. spellbound isn't uh explicitly about murderers per se no uh, but it's it gets there but you know, it's not really yeah. it's uh it's more about trying to explore other states of mind and using psychoanalysis to do that and i mm. think he's uh there's a lot of shop in it and i think that's what i really like about spellbound yeah. it's been a while since i've seen it but i remember really really loving it no it's quite good um well, while we're talking about people who are obsessed with uh, uh, murder, mm-hmm. uh, well, we have to talk about a movie which, in, uh, on certain days, it's my favorite, but it's it, it really was the first. I already talked about it a little bit. It's Strangers on a Train. <laughs> Strangers on a Train. I, I didn't have it on my list. Oh, so it's I, so I, I, I do love Strangers on a Train, though. Uh, Strangers on a Train is just a wonderfully wicked little film. Uh, it is about two people who meet by sheer absolute happenstance on a train. They are uh, strangers on a train. They're complete strangers. They just happen to meet on a train and they strike up a conversation. One of whom, played by Farley Granger, is a mild celebrity. He's a tennis player. If you know tennis, you'd know him. Hmm. Uh, and he's going through a divorce right now. He wants to marry someone else. And his uh, wife is... Making it really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of well known. It's a bit of a scandal. Uh, he runs into uh, the absolutely incomparable Robert Walker, one of the great movie villains right here. Mm-hmm. Just uh, unbelievably de- terrifying, this man. Um, and he is, he's a rich kid. His family is rich. Uh, he hates his father. Uh, and uh, he just thinks he just thinks famous people are neat, and so he wants to talk to this guy, and he wants to impress him, and so he starts talking to him about. I had an idea for the perfect murder. You want to hear my idea for the perfect murder? And Farley Granger, it involves you. <laughs> and Farley Granger's sitting there, is like, sure, Bruno. And so the guy's like, okay, so here's the deal. I want to kill my father, but I can't kill my father because if I killed my father, the first person the police would look to is me because I have a motive. So they would immediately start putting the pieces together and they'd figure out that I did it. Doesn't make any sense. 
you want to kill your wife. And Farley Green is like, um, you want to kill your wife. Okay. So like, sure. For, this, for yeah. sake of argument, let's say yeah. I want to kill my wife. But you can't kill her because everyone would think you did it. So we swap murders. I kill your wife. No one would ever think I did that because there's no record of us meeting. We just happened to meet on a train. And then no one will ever think I did it. Bada bing. And then you kill my father, Chris Cross. And at the end of the, when they, the, the train stops and Robert Walker's like, you like my idea, don't you? Hmm. And Farley Grant is just trying to appease this weird fan. He's like, sure, Bruno, it's a great idea. And then he goes about his business and then Bruno kills his wife. <laughs> and then Bruno is just like, and now you got to kill my father. Hmm. I did not agree to this. Yeah, you did. Oh, God. <laughs> and now Farley Granger is completely screwed. And Robert Walker is starting to get a little bit more intense about when you're going to kill my father. Hmm. Yeah, you're going to kill him, right? <laughs> oh, it's so fucking disturbing. Um, it's based on a Patricia Highsmith story. Patricia Highsmith also did talent to Mr. Ripley. Patricia Highsmith is one of the meanest crime writers. <laughs> just, just this absolute terrifying mean streak in hmm. Patricia Highsmith. Just absolute no faith in human nature whatsoever and it leads to some of those diabolical stories you've ever seen or read has there been a patricia highsmith biopic yet there needs to be i think so. if there was i don't know it there was we covered on cancel too soon a patricia highsmith uh, tv series that's true uh, mistress of suspense aka mm. chillers hosted by anthony perkins uh which had some good ones mm. it was a pretty good uh, pretty good anthology but um yeah, this has a whole bunch of really iconic shots, but what it really boils down to is it's a great idea, and Robert Walker kills it. He is absolutely everything this movie needs. He's one of the great movie villains. Uh, I love this movie to pieces. It's a great introduction to Hitchcock, I feel, because it's high concept, but easy to grasp. Uh, it ages pretty well. You mm. don't need to. You, you're not going to go like, oh, it's old. Like, no, it's still pretty exciting. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I love it to pieces. It's going to make my list no matter what. Um, I have another Joan Fontaine movie. Of course you do. <laughs> I have Rebecca. Does it rhyme with Schmebecca? Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it rhymes with Schmebecca. Okay. Um, uh, Joan Fontaine plays not Rebecca. Uh, no. Rebecca is we not. We never in, see Rebecca. Rebecca is not in the movie. But she's everywhere in the movie. <laughs> um, uh, she falls in with uh, Laurence Olivier, who is uh, a bit of a cad who negs her a lot. She's actually a very timid character, but she mm. finds herself in this awkward position of falling in love with him. It's an awkward affair. Yeah. And, uh, and he's, he's grieving. She finds out like his yeah. wife died not that long ago. His, so. The dead wife is Rebecca. Yeah. So and he's like on holiday trying to move on with his life. Yes. And so she, they meet at this one weird yeah. narrow window where he's like kind of free, yeah. but he's still very haunted. Yeah. So he he's very haunted. This this movie has a very like it's like a Jane Eyre quality to it. Oh yeah, very gothic. And and, yeah. uh, and, and I think Olivier played Rochester in a in a film of Jane Eyre. Well, he was in Wuthering film. Heights. Was he in Jane Eyre? I think he was in a Jane Eyre. I'll, I'll look it up just to confirm. Right. I think I think he did. Hold on. But go on. I don't know for sure. But um uh, yeah, uh, John Fontaine moves into the gigantic estate, and it is pretty much empty. Uh, this, he's a little bit destitute, and uh, the only person that she can really share space with is not Olivier, but the creepy maid. Uh, the creepy maid uh, is rather unambiguously Rebecca's ex-lover, or at the very least, she was in love with Rebecca. Um, uh, it was uh, Mrs. Danvers, played by Judith Anderson. Super creepy. And 
it's it's sort of like Vertigo. This is mm. a weird kind of replacement story where it seems like Mrs. Danvers is trying to make the the new uh uh, Rebecca mm-hmm. out of Joan Fontaine. Yeah, you, you, you're in the house so, now. De, I will, I will Winter, be, Mrs. DeWinter is her name. I will make, yeah. you, I will make you the new Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the record, uh, I cannot find record of uh, uh, Laurence Olivier playing uh, Rochester. However, mm-hmm. Joan Fontaine did play Jane Eyre in 1943 oh. <laughs> opposite uh, Orson Welles. And that is a very, Ooh, very good version. Okay. That is a very, very, that's actually, honestly, it's probably my favorite version. Mm. That's I haven't seen in a while, but that was, that's really, really good. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. That's, that, that's back with young hunky Orson Welles. Yeah, like, just, oh, I mean, young, Jane, Jane Eyre is such a such an interesting story. It's so great. I, I really it's like so Jane Eyre. Creepy, yeah, uh, yeah. I, so I'm I'm casting everybody as Rochester in yeah, my I'm, head. I'm not a fan of the Michael Fassbender version. He's oh, just I like, like that one. Uh, no, he, I don't, I don't buy the romance one. in that one. He's so he's so, so bitter he's, and he's so bitter. And, uh, I don't buy them. I don't want them to end up together. There's well, nothing about the, me that I want to. It's not even like there's a hint of romance or spark. Like, right. no, everyone's already dead. Like, we've already <laughs> the, the life has already been pulled out of him. And mm. I feel like the idea is that the life has been pulled out of him, but then Jane Eyre kind of brings it back a little. Mm. And now there's hope, but he's still trapped. And it's like, yeah, no, I think that one he just feels nothing but trapped. And mm. it's I don't really. It feels tragic in a different way. I don't know. It's not my favorite version. But anyway, the, but, uh, the Joan Fontaine version is but, very good. Uh, but this feels a lot like a classic novel. Very this, much so. Yeah. Um, yes. in, in sort of like well, this, it is. It's a uh, Daphne du Maurier novel. Uh, but for, but, but the, classical, yeah. The, it's adapted for a novel that was published like just a few years before the movie came out. Granted, I, uh, this feels like something that's like a century old. Apologies. Yes, you're right. Uh, it, it just it has that kind of gothic quality. Oh, and, you know, so. a, a and lot of the shots of, of the It just does yeah, have an actual ghost in it, yeah. Well, uh, this is the way uh, Hitchcock did ghosts. It was yeah. the the memory of the thing. Uh, Hitchcock was rather uh, openly averse to the supernatural. He, yeah. didn't, he didn't want to make movies about that. That didn't interest him. Yeah. He was much more interested in the evil of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, more than enough evil in humanity to keep us busy. Yeah. He, he, we don't he need ghosts. He didn't want to do like supernatural stories or monster stories. I think he was approached several times like, you could do another Dracula or whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that's not my thing. He only did one. And we might get to it. Oh, okay. We might. Yeah. But yeah, this idea that uh, what is a haunting? A haunting is a memory. It's what something that happened in a place mm-hmm. that you remember and you feel like those memories have now kind of stained the place. You can't get over them. Yeah, yeah. they're a traumatic incident or a traumatic you know, relationship exactly. that so is just forever tainted you, yeah. This is as close, I think, as, as Hitchcock got to a legit ghost story. Mm-hmm. But yes. I feel there's also like a great deal of melancholy in Rebecca. Yeah. It, at the end, it's not about you know exercising the demon and finding things afresh. It's about the sadness and destruction that comes from loss. Yeah. So there's there's a great sadness permeating throughout Rebecca that I really really like. In, in many respects this feels more like uh like Hitchcock's like one truly great straight drama. Mm-hmm. Um like the the actual like thriller elements of Rebecca are the least interesting parts for me. Like the the, the once like all is kind of revealed in Rebecca, you feel oh, yeah, like the movie's like, wrapping um, up. Oh, who's there's... the who's the like the investigating character? Oh, it's um, it's, um oh. some uh, was it George it's, Sanders? It's George Sanders. Yeah, yeah, George you. Sanders. I was, I was blanking okay. on it. Yeah, George Sanders. Uh, I love George Sanders. I love him in this. But like, there's a whole bit like towards the end after everything is kind of revealed and uh, uh, Joan Fontaine discovers. But Joan Fontaine is so overwhelmed by the by the spirit of Rebecca. We never learn her character's name. She's just she's just Mrs. De Winter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, after everything is sort of revealed, the movie has plot to like backed up. It's like yeah, backed up plot, yeah, and we have that's, to like that's another, the least interesting it's, part it's of like, the movie. It's like 
15 to 20 minutes of falling action and it's the only reason it didn't make my list because i do love this movie mm. uh but yeah, it's just the ending is just the takes a while and uh mm. but um until then this is an incredibly deft piece of work it's a lot of subtlety there's mm. a lot of really insidious character interaction you can really just every single uh piece of set design every single uh, conversation, every single line mm. of dialogue just seems to have triple meanings, and and, um, and, it's, and it's and Joan Fontaine, she won an Oscar for Suspicion because she should have won an Oscar for this, and they felt bad about it. That's the <laughs> only thing that makes sense to me. Joan Maybe, Fontaine uh, is at another level in Rebecca. She is hmm. unbelievably good in this movie, and there's queerness, so, and there's a lot of queerness. It's, it's like, villainous it's, queerness, which is very production code, uh, yeah. but at least it's here. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. so. Something yeah, to be said. How, how mercenary are you about representation? Uh, a, and this some, is our question. Yeah, some people feel like representation at all costs. Yeah. It doesn't matter if the, the queer person is a villain. They're in there. Yeah. Better than nothing. Uh, my next pick is a film uh, that it's, it's very different from Rebecca. It's a lot pulpier than Rebecca. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a movie that I think has been overshadowed by the remake. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the original, I think, is a lot better. It's oh, the Psycho. Man- Yes, yes. Uh, everybody prefers the remake. Yeah. Psycho is three million. Anyway. <laughs> it's pulpy. Yeah, it is. It's, it is. It's, it is pulpy. And Hitchcock, is, nobody, is, nobody even talks about Hitchcock's Psycho anymore. No, no, it's no, all it's Van Sant. Completely forgotten. Uh, no, it's The Man Who Knew Too Much. It's a movie that Hitchcock oh, yeah. himself remade. Mm. Uh, Man Who Knew Too Much is one of Hitchcock's early thrillers. It came out in 1934. Uh, and uh, it is about uh, a British family on a holiday and they end up uh, running afoul and accidentally embroiled in a criminal conspiracy. Uh, there's a kidnapping, and now the parents have got to uh, find some way to save their family and save the day and save England. Um, the remake with James Stewart and Doris Day is, frankly, bloated and not very interesting to me. Doris uh, Day? I know. <laughs> That's a weird, uh, weird casting. It's so weird. Um, but, uh, look, it, there's a lot to like about that movie. It's not a bad movie, but it's very much like the Hollywood version of it. It's just, it's, it's bigger, but not necessarily better. Mm-hmm. The original man who knew too much is basically, first off, the family is awesome. Like it opens in like, I think it's the Alps and it's in the middle of a sharpshooting contest and mom is winning. So that's pretty cool in 1934, and that will be important later. You can fucking bet. So at the end, Mom's going to have to shoot some fuckers. Um, <laughs> Peter Laurie, who's like in one of his first roles, or first like American roles or English language roles, uh, uh, plays this like incredibly creepy, mm-hmm. like super creepy guy. You're telling he's, you're telling me Peter Laurie played a creepy character, but this is like one of the first. This is like one of the first like English language ones he did. I mean, mm-hmm. he's just unbelievably just and every I single the creepy character since I was a child. Every single like step of the way, every single step of the investigation is treated a little bit more like a horror movie than in like a than like a glossy thriller. Like, oh, we got to go to this church well this church feels like it just came out of a lovecraft ritual or we got to go to this dentist's office bad shit will happen in a dentist's office in a hitchcock movie uh it's lurid but it's got really great characters and it's just really smart and cool and like it just the the rules of the hitchcock would go on to sort of define the thriller and get so bored with it he'd make like north by northwest just to tear it down again uh, this is before the rules have been codified. 
This is before there was like by the we hadn't invented the numbers to do by the numbers thriller storytelling yet. <laughs> so this is still like in that early phase of like early cinematic like sound thrillers where they were kind of throwing shit up against the wall and it was weird and episodic and uh, it's it keeps you on your toes. You never quite know where it's going. Mm. Some things are set up pretty well. Again, mom will shoot some fuckers, but like <laughs> beyond that, like you just never quite know where this thing's going to go. And it's, it's seriously, it's half a horror movie. And I really, really love this movie a lot. And it, for me, it towers over the remake, even though the remake is glossier and has mm. a more famous cast. Uh, but uh, please see it. It is great. I've seen neither. So, okay. Well, there you go. Mm. Uh, what, what do you got next? Um, uh, we're we're up down to the last four here, mm-hmm. um, and time for some ringers. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid. I, I think the last four are all gimmies. Uh, my number four is rope. Ah, uh, uh, rope is wonderful. Yeah, r- rope. We've talked uh, about rope a lot. We, we talk about rope a couple of times. Uh, it was whole part of our, on, it. on a our Rocky Horror podcast. Yeah, uh, because it's based on uh, Leopold and Loeb, and good golly, does Alfred Hitchcock queer up the joint? Uh, he uh, <laughs> he. Uh, <sighs> As explicitly as he could have made it in a mainstream Hollywood film at that time, he makes the two lead characters lovers. They're essentially boyfriends who are, they're roommates, as the, <laughs> the euphemism went. Uh, it, it's really frustrating reading history. It's like, here's a painting of these two women, and they're like tongue kissing <laughs> on a park bench. Yes, and these, they these, were roommates. They, they were good friends. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> they, they lived in the same home. For many years. For many years. <laughs> And, they were very and, and mysteriously. Here, they never married. Yeah, they, they, they never married, and uh, and here they are. Here's a very, painting. Very sad. They never found love. Here's a, pa- a, a painting of them licking each other's tonsils, but they were only good friends. <laughs> yeah. Th- th- thanks. Uh, thanks. Traditional homophobia. People are oh, stupid. <laughs> People are really stupid. Oh, oh, were they roommates? Anyway. Uh, th- th- uh, the, the two characters, uh, the two main characters in Rope are roommates. Um, they're played by uh, John Dahl and Furley Granger. And uh, right, the opening shot, bang, they're murdering a guy. They're strangling to death with uh, with the title Rope. And they put him in a footlocker and they start, we learn through dialogue, they've done this because uh, they want the intellectual thrill. They have uh, been studying philosophy, reading a lot of books, uh, they're already, you know, somewhat morally bankrupt if they're doing this, but they've convinced themselves that uh, murder can be intellectualized. Yeah, and they've done. And, and this, the, mur- the all it takes to to commit murder is simply to have the will to do it. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, you're better than other people. Yeah, other people yeah, are yeah, cowards. And uh, a philosophy I don't agree with, by the way. Yeah, John, I do not take that line out of context. John, John Dahl is a, the more cavalier of them. Farley Granger is, you know, a little bit more. Uh, disgusted with what they have done and to sort of cement this stunt they've pulled uh in what uh, hitchcock stages is what's meant to look like a single take uh are going to have a party in the very apartment just moments after the murder has occurred so they put the they stuff the body in a footlocker they put things on top of the footlocker and they have guests over while well, the they, body they, is they still put the, the buffet yeah it's so <laughs> ghoulish they put the buffet on the body mm. And the the, the, dude, the dude's family and, and like girlfriend are showing up. Mm. Yeah, and uh, they I'll invite never over lunch again. And they invite over their uh, professor, who has been sort of putting a lot of these ideas in their head. Yeah, it's an intellectual exercise, mm. and it's like yeah. murder is just like he's he's intellectualizing a lot of like vice and, and sin, and uh, yeah. and so they start having conversations with him and. 
they can't get him to sort of go all the way with it. It's like, yeah, but what if we actually murdered? Well, you wouldn't actually murder. Right, right. I was just kidding. We wouldn't actually yeah. murder. And, then, and it's, and and it's Stewart. Jimmy Stewart who yeah. ends up uh, he starts, sort of he starts, catching wise to what's going on. He starts like, they're being weird. Uh-huh. And the only, like, he starts he starts putting the pieces together Wait, a little bit. Hey, where's, where's... Uh, the Cro- guest of Cro- honor, Croak yeah. Deadman, or whatever his name was. <laughs> yeah, where, 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 where is he? And like, mm-hmm. and he realizes that they're just they're being really shifty, and they're talking a lot about murder. Mm-hmm. And they used to talk a lot about wanting to commit murder. And one guy is suspiciously not in the room. <laughs> and wait a second. <laughs> and I love, I love like the towards the climax when Jim Stewart is like. He wants to be wrong. Mm. He desperately wants to be wrong. He does not want this because if he's right and they killed somebody, James Stewart has to accept that he's partly responsible for this because he he, he put those ideas. He, in these he kids, intellectualized yeah. immorality to the point where someone it he was teaching, yeah. someone he was teaching, just actually like didn't take it as a philosophical exercise, but actually believed it. And it's really a, a movie about a lot of things. It's a movie about the insidiousness of bad ideas of evil, um, and it's great. It's it's also shot in like a whole bunch of like really long oneers. Mm. Um, some of um, them are better. It's supposed to look like it's all one shot. Some yeah, of the he, cuts he, are better hidden than he others. Che- he cheats by like panning into like somebody's yeah. back or into a yeah. dark corner, and yeah, yeah. that's so, clearly where the edits are hidden. Sometimes he gets away with it. Sometimes he doesn't. But I, I um, think um, had the technology been available, he would have done it in a single take. Oh, he absolutely would have mm-hmm. and could have. But um, uh, film cameras can only carry so much film at the time. That's so, just a practical yeah. reality. Yeah. No, but uh, no. Rope is rope is a killer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's clearly an experimental film. Like he's just seeing if he can do a movie like this. But he found material that was actually really dense and rich, uh, and so even if even if you just shut off the gimmick and you forget about it, you're just completely riveted, mm. and it's great. Um, speaking of weird movies that uh, Hitchcock tried just to kind of see if he could pull it off, uh, the trouble with Harry. What is the trouble with Harry? It's he's quite dead. Is the trouble with <laughs> Harry? Uh, the Trouble with Harry takes place in like this little sleepy, you know, autumnal, uh, beautiful town in Vermont. And uh, wouldn't you know it, there's a corpse just sitting there hmm. in the middle of a field. And uh, everyone in town who's going about their own business keeps encountering this corpse. And everyone's like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, we gotta do something about that, don't we? Uh, oh, someone might think I did that. Oh, I guess I'll bury him. But then they have to unbury him. Like, this corpse gets, like, buried and unburied multiple times throughout <laughs> the movie. As he will just, like, he's just this thing we have to deal with. He's just, like, this... The, a human body is the MacGuffin in this movie. And it's just... That was, everyone, uh, was the, the trouble with Melchiades Estrada as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 not funny. But, yeah, that's another one it's where... Like, it's, or, or it's, it's, like, halfway between that and, like, Weekend at Bernie's. Like, these, these, two, <laughs> these two absolute extremes about movies about what we're going to do with a dead body. But here it's an entire town that's just so charmingly befuddled. This is Shirley MacLaine's first movie, and it's a leading role. And mm. she's just incredibly wonderfully witty in it. Um, it's, a, it's just this really... It's a really bleak comedy in a lot of ways because it's really making light of death. Mm. It's really just saying, what if death, the death of some a stranger or even someone you knew, was little more than an inconvenience? And 
when like you you died, everyone was just like, "Oh, what are we gonna do with that fucking thing?" It's just laying there like a like a corpse, like just laying there. Like, what are we supposed to do? Did you ever see uh, Shortcuts? I the, never the, saw the Robert Altman film. I never saw Shortcuts. Uh, huge ensemble cast, many many yeah. stories. But one of them is uh, Fred Ward and his fishing buddies mm-hmm. are. They've uh, gotten away for the weekends. They're going to go fishing in the river, and wouldn't you know, they find a dead body in the river. They're not going to let that stop them from having a good fishing trip. <laughs> so they just tie up the body to deal with later and go fishing. And oh so they're like God. drinking beers, having it's fishing, be and the dead explain. body's just floating in the water. It's going to be hard and to And he gets home, yeah, we found this dead body. It was crazy. Wait, so it like showed up on the last day? No, yes, no, it was the there last on, day. No, it was there on the first day. What, you, what'd you do? Well, we tied it up and we went fishing. That, that's monstrous. Why? She's already dead. Yeah, yeah. But that's a, that's the thing. This yeah. idea that we can be so callous and cavalier. Yeah. And, but we can do that while still maintaining our sympathy for these characters. It's a wonderfully well-written movie. It feels very Coen Brothers-esque. Uh, Hitchcock did a couple of movies like that. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, this is this is just a hoot. It's a it's a dark comedy. It's very ahead of its time. People did not know what to make of this fucking thing. <laughs> no, it's not a thriller, but there's still a dead body. Mm. It's not. A, it can't really be a comedy because it's really, it's really dark and ghoulish. Uh, what is it? And it's just what's wrong with dark and ghoulish comedy? Well, it wasn't the norm, was it? And so mm. people just didn't know what to make of it at the time. And now, if this came out now, I think people would be like really respond to it and think it's really, really wonderful. But this is one of those Hitchcock movies that actually like vanished for a while. Hmm. Um, some of his bigger films, uh, like Vertigo as well, were uh, were just unavailable for a long time. The rights hmm. were, I, I forget the whole story. I think it was like some of his family had the rights to them and hmm. they kept them out of the public eye for a while. And they were finally like all re-released in the 80s. People were like, oh shit, those are great. <laughs> uh so, yeah, The Trouble with Harry is just a, a really delightful, quirky, creepy little <laughs> film, and I, and I love it to pieces. Beautifully shot, by the way. All right, uh, we got see, three more to go. What do you got? See, you, you have the cool ones. Well, I keep I, telling you to watch more Hitchcock. Uh, I guess you're right. Because um, the famous ones are great, but a lot of the ones mm. that are less famous mm. are really interesting, <laughs> and I'm really fond of them. Okay. What do you got next? My number three is Rear Window. Okay, that's my number one. Okay. Oh, well, that's fine. It's, it's our first overlap, too. It's um, our first overlap. It's right, yeah. yeah I, but I, I think Rear Window is one of the perfect movies. Yeah, Rear, Rear Window, uh, you probably know Rear Window. It's been uh, riffed upon. It's been remade. Uh, it's It's been uh, your favorite cartoon show had a Rear Window episode, and it's about uh, Jimmy Stewart. He plays a photographer. He uh, lives in a high-rise apartment uh, that overlooks a courtyard, and the set is amazing because we actually get to see the entire courtyard uh, from Jimmy Stewart's window, and wouldn't you know it, he has a broken leg and he can't get around. He can't go up, up and down the stairs. Mm-hmm. He's sort of stuck in his apartment while he heals. And he was and he was like a daredevil photographer. He would go out and explore yeah, and travel like, the world. Like so being stuck in his apartment is just hell for him. So uh, he takes up his uh, telescopic lens uh, from his camera and he decides to just sort of look at his neighbors because he's yeah. bored. He's got it, nothing else to look at. The rear window in his apartment looks out into a courtyard and he mm. can see a lot of different apartment complexes. Yeah, and, 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 everyone, uh, and everyone everyone he can see has, a, has like some sort of little mini story going on that relates directly to what he's going through, mm. either with his girlfriend, played by Grace Kelly, or with his job, or with his anxieties mm. about so-and-so. Mm. And it's really clever. And, uh, and of course, the most uh, eye-catching uh, drama that he witnesses is Raymond Burr's story, because he just killed his wife. 
and uh, or so Jimmy Stewart. Or, or so, so he thinks. can't it's, prove it. it. It just looks really bad. It looks really suspicious. Uh, but yeah, he's he's just witnessing it across through a window. Mm-hmm. And how is he going to a prove it? B uh, catch the guy if it's real? Mm-hmm. Convince and, anyone uh, he knows that he's mm-hmm. not just letting his imagination run away with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great one because it's the sort of thing where the audience sees what Jimmy Stewart sees. So we know why it looks suspicious, but then every single time he has to tell someone, you realize he didn't see anything. No, it is. There's really nothing. It looks bad, but like he actually didn't see anything damning. It just looks weird. So uh, it's really, really great storytelling. I'm I'm very fond of movies that deal with voyeurism because Mm. that's what movies are. Their dramas are voyeurism. We get to spy on other people's stories. Uh, And this is a movie about voyeurism. Oh, where the voyeur is the hero. So that kind of implicates us in a heroic way. Yeah. Uh, I think that's very clever. I think it's very, uh, so unbelievably tightly constructed and written. It's like, there's, there's no fat in this thing whatsoever. No, I think, I think literally every creative decision in the movie rear window works. It's Mm -hmm. one of those, it's a rare movie where every single thing about it is entertaining and exciting, but also extremely well thought out, like Mm -hmm. thematically and, this this is serious. I do consider this. There's a short list of movies. I, mean, I don't really have like it written down, but like it's a short list of movies I have where I just like I cannot find a flaw in this. Like I really <laughs> can't. And its rear window is right up at the top yeah. of there. Like it's it's damn near perfect. And of the movies of Hitchcock's I've seen, this is the funniest. Maybe it, it actually mm, even it's though it's about witty. it's about murder and trying to figure out this mystery. There's there's a lightness. To mm. Rear Window that because I think is incredibly appealing because it's also it's also a romantic comedy like mm. it's it's <laughs> Jim Stewart and Grace Kelly they're they're in love uh, they met when he was like a daredevil photographer but now like she's like this debutante mm. and she's like going over to take care of him but he feels like really boring and un, you know he doesn't really want to hang out with her and like like he he's just sort of ashamed of mm. what he is right now and. But she just wants to hang out with them, and they're so damn funny together. <laughs> they're so like the last shot of this movie is actually a cute shot of Grace Kelly and how she's changed, but maybe she hasn't over the course of the story. Um, and it's just kind of everything. It's so fucking good. <laughs> no, I love it to pieces. It's 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 really really great. Um, so I only got two left now because he, he took my number one, which is fine. All right, which is fine. But we just already talked about it. Um, so would you like me to go again then? No, no, no. Uh, that that doesn't make any sense. Um. No, it's fine. I'm just debating. I, 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 sometimes I make these things a little loose. Like, you know, if Whitney picks something, maybe I'll pick yeah, something kind of. else. So uh, I'm just debating what I'm going to... What I, what deserves the time. All right. Uh, so, um, eh, fuck it. Uh, let's talk about Family Plot. Family Plot That's is the, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's last movie. Mm. It was the last movie he finished before he died. Uh, and it's another one that is often, and I think erroneously... Uh, sort of disregarded uh, as uh, you know, sort of a throw-off film. Like, oh, Hitchcock was just was just funning around. It really wasn't like one of his big passion projects, and it doesn't have that epic sweep that a lot of his great films does. Like a movie that I'm not going to get a chance to talk about is Notorious. Notorious is also fucking uh, impeccable. It's yeah, huge. I, I it's really, great. I like Notorious. Notorious is I've awesome. One, yeah. Again, there are a lot of films leaving off my list that are amazing, but you know, you you already know about them, mm-hmm. or at least you should. Um, but uh, this is a caper. 
This is a fun, very Coen Brothers-esque caper. Like, if the Coen Brothers yeah, made this, this now, the, people would think it's great. The second Hitchcock film you've compared to the Coen Brothers. Yeah, and, I, and I think the Coen Brothers have a lot of their DNA in, in Hitchcock, especially when they started doing with crime. Mm-hmm. Like, the way that Fargo... Fargo isn't Hitchcockian, but the tone is. Yeah, That's sort of, just sort of... Uh, casual everyday malevolence hidden under the surface of polite society or, or small town society. Well, what I appreciate about the Cone brothers is, uh, how, um, like what fuck ups the criminals are. Yeah. And that's, I, I guess that's also part of Hitchcock too. It's what goes back to dialogue for murder, how it's about how he almost gets away with it, but he kind of screws up and you yeah. know, it's that state of mind. Yeah. Uh, so Family Plot has a really, 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 really fun setup. Um, so it starts off with Barbara Harris. She is a phony psychic. She pretends to be a psychic. She's just bilking people out of money. Uh, her uh, partner slash boyfriend uh, is played by Bruce Dern. Uh, and uh, Bruce Dern is uh, basically does her busy work and is also, I think he's also like a cab driver or something. Uh, and they are asked to find the missing heir to a fortune. And in return, they'll get like, you know, a like a, a cut, you know, finder's fee. Uh-huh. And so they're like, okay, um, well, that sounds legal. We could, we could do something legal. <laughs> Why don't we try that for a change? So they're going to, they're, they're playing detective and they're trying to track down someone uh, who without knowing it is going to inherit like millions of dollars and their mm-hmm. life is going to be set in stone. What they don't realize is that the person that they're looking for is a kidnapper and a thief. <laughs> like, he was like, I think he was like adopted or something. And uh, now he has turned to a life of crime and he's teamed up with Karen Black to do these really elaborate kidnapping slash heists. I had no idea Bruce Stern and Karen Black were in this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really cool cast. All right. Um, it is spry. It is lively. It is imaginative. It's really it's um, it's it's shot like a seventies movie. It has that color palette, but it just Hitchcock's eye for framing is so unlike anyone else in the seventies that it really just sort of sticks out like a sore thumb in the decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and Barbara Harris is just absolutely charming in it, and Bruce Dern is a really Bruce Dern just feels a little out of place in Hitchcock, like he's almost like too straight a character actor, but it kind of works. Because he's just sort of trying to suss out, wait a minute, is this Hitchcockian? Is that what William Devane is up to with Karen Black? Are they are they doing something? Oh, shit. I thought it was in a character piece. And um, I love William Devane, too. By oh, the way. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. It's absolutely stunning cast. Like, it's, a, it's an incredibly clever, sharp, funny thriller. Mm. And I don't want to spoil it because hardly anyone talks about this one. It's not like Psycho where everyone knows what happens. It's like, no, it's it's a real hoot of a flick. And um, yeah, I just I'm, I'm a huge fan. I hope mm. you check it out. Uh, wait, you got two more. What you I got? got? Two more. Uh, my number two is Vertigo. Uh, I know that's a bit of a cliche. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vertigo was voted number one best movie of all time on the last Sight and Sound poll. Yeah, we got another one coming up next year. Oh, it's not too late for us they, to be invited. They, yeah, they still haven't asked me yet, but yeah, you know, I don't know. They, I don't know how one gets invited. If anyone knows how we can get how you can how we interviewed for the poll like, by the sight and sound poll, like sort of a hi. Yeah, here we are. We, we'd love to. We brought you some contribute. soaps. Like I don't know. What, <laughs> I don't know what to do. Like I don't know how you get involved in the in the sight and sound poll. Bake Boy, your, 
make you a root beer. I don't know cake. if I get, I don't know if I'm gonna be alive ten years from now with the way the world is going. Yeah, I just yeah, this might be my only chance. This is really yeah, want to be. In the, tw- that's, 20- that's my fantasy. That's my ultimate. I could die. I could just be like, mm. oh good, I was in the sight and sound bowl. Mm. I'm good. That's yeah, like my last. Last, last one was in last 20, dream. Last one was in 2012, and they do one once a decade. And yeah. uh, since um, I think it was 52. Uh, or maybe it was no fifty two. I think it was rules of the game. I think from like sixty two onward. Sixty two on, yeah. Uh, from sixty two until twenty twelve, uh, Citizen Kane was the number one film, pretty much unfailingly. Mm. Uh, usually with a bullet, it was never close. And yeah. in twenty twelve, Vertigo supplanted it yeah. as the best film of all time. It got Kane the most is still votes. number two. Kane yeah. is still solid mm. number two. It was close. And the but rules Vertigo of the game and uh, the usual suspects. Yeah. Rules of the game. Tokyo Story. It's been a long time since like uh, a newish movie has cracked into like the top well, ten. You know, there were so many old movies on the last poll. They actually had a secondary poll uh, of uh, relatively new, new stuff. like things yeah. from the last decade. Like that's, that had been good. released in the last decade. So there's like an unofficial list because as well. A- after a while, when you do those lists, mm. you start looking, you're looking at a lot of historical influence yeah. and those don't stop being influential. Do right, they? Right. You know? Yeah. So they're, um, they're kind of canonized. That, but anyway, that uh, had me reconsidering uh, Vertigo because I, I saw Vertigo when I was in college. And like most people who watch Vertigo in college, it's opaque and baffling and you don't like it. <laughs> and it's cold and strange. <laughs> And what the hell is Hitchcock saying with this movie? And is this movie about what I think it is? And I, I appreciate some of the staging, but it's slow and, and off-putting. Uh, and yeah, I watched it a couple times. I showed it to a couple friends. And that was kind of the consensus for the longest time, that this was sort of the most oblique of Hitchcock's films. Uh, and you know, in recent years, over the course of the last decade, I've watched it a couple more times. And I've come to appreciate it quite deeply mm-hmm. in terms of what it's delving into in terms of the psychology. We talked about how Jimmy Stewart doesn't have that darkness in him. So when he turns into sort of this kind of wickedly manipulative character, it doesn't mm-hmm. play right. But in a way that you have that we have Jimmy Stewart doing that makes it a little bit more, more disturbing. Well, it's, it's sad. It's like, yeah, it's, it's yeah, not, it's only some it evil person him, who's like cackling because he's getting no, away it's, with it's, something. It's, it's someone a little bit more pathetic. Yeah. And, it's like, he can't help himself. He's just yeah. so damaged, you know? And the idea of uh, shaping another human being into a character you've created, first of all, that's film direction, isn't it? it so is. this is, you know, a very uh, self-referential to the way film operates. Yeah. But isn't the also you could argue make an argument for that's the way any human relationship works, where you see an an idealized version of the person you're dating. You're trying to kind of remake them as you go. At least that's uh, the cynical a ba- way of looking at it. Bad yeah. dating habit. Well, you, but yeah. that's that's an approach to this. Yeah. Uh, or you could see it as just the way of we we in, the way we interact with fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look at these imaginary characters and we start taking different kind of meanings from it. So I think there's a lot of layers of of meaning mm-hmm. as to what's going on. The story is Jimmy Stewart is hired to follow this woman who. Uh, is is thought to be going mad. Yeah, she's like become obsessed with like a relative. It's almost like um H.P. Lovecraft's, Lovecraft's The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Mm. Someone becomes obsessed yeah, yeah. with like someone in like a painting and starts thinking they are them. Yeah. And, so, um, yeah. So this fellow has hired Jimmy Stewart to follow his wife. His wife is played by Kim Novak. She's in gray and she's blonde, that which wasn't done at the time. He kind of invented that look. Uh, and I don't know how sure that is, but okay, I believe you. And uh, Jimmy Stewart follows her, yeah, and she becomes she's obsessed with this painting. Of, I forgot the name of the, the yeah. woman in the painting, but I forget too. Uh, yeah, she she's obsessed with it, and uh, the story of the woman in the painting was she died tragically. So it, now we're suspicious that 
she's gonna Kim Novak is gonna herself, gonna die, yeah. yeah, kill herself tragically in a very similar fashion, and Jimmy Stewart gets all caught up in this, and it becomes yeah, very he falls ghostly, in love with her, of course, yeah, a really obsession. Yeah. And then, uh, but and then, then halfway there's, there's through a, the movie, there's a twist halfway through, and uh, then later on in the movie, uh, he sees another woman who looks a lot like the woman he was following originally, and also I'm, played by Kim Novak. I'm, I'm leaving a lot of details out because if you haven't seen it, I want to yeah. leave them surprises. Uh, and a lot of this movie is devoted to him f- uh, chasing this other woman played by Kim Novak, and. F- kind of forcing her to dress like the original Kim Novak that he yeah, fell in love with. Yeah, forcing her to become the person that he fell in love with yeah. who isn't her. Yeah. Yeah, and and he's and he's really brusque and insistent about it. Like he's yeah. not doing it subtly. Yeah, it's really weird. Um and you know, and there's more secrets besides. And the actual plot again, it, the plot, the ending of the plot mm. is a bit of a cop out. I don't care about the plot. Yeah. It's just the obsession that I like. Uh, the filmmaking is impeccable. If you um, the cinematography may be the yeah, best just in Hitchcock's his, the, career, which the is, use of which color, the use of cinematographer, uh, but like yeah. regardless, it's gorgeous. It's stunning. Yeah, uh, and it violates what in in cinema is called the rule of threes, where ordinarily uh, action falls uh, to the left third or the right third of the screen. That's yeah. where a, a figure will stand. Everything in Vertigo is in the dead center, which makes it really kind of disturbing to watch. Mm-hmm. It's very unsettling. Uh, I've, I've, I think uh, of Hitchcock's movies, this is the one I've watched the most just because I was trying to get under its skin, and I feel yeah. like I finally did it. Okay. The, uh, the issue with Vertigo is you can appreciate it the more you know about cinema. I think you have to have sort of a deep knowledge of the way film operates and especially how Hitchcock has operated in the past to really understand, like, unlock it. Yeah. Which, you know, falls it into the camp of films that could be accused of being pretentious. Uh, You need a lot of pretense to Mm -hmm. appreciate it, but I don't see pretense as necessarily a bad thing. No, not necessarily. Mm. Uh, I I think in the case of Vertigo, it is. Uh, I'm actually actually not a big fan of this one. Um, And I I know a lot of people aren't, and uh, I understand that praising vertigo is both obvious and often seen as kind of wrong-headed because it's the least in a weird way it's the least emotionally engaging it's a lot more intellectual than well, those other movies i'm not sure that's i'm not sure that's fair i, mm. I actually do think it's incredibly emotional it's dour mm. it's uh, pessimistic. I, do, I, I do think it's incredibly emotional i do think there's a definite uh uh it's, it's tragically emotional in a way that mm. um hitchcock wasn't necessarily always interested in focusing on he was usually interested in more entertainment um no, for me, again, there's a lot to admire in Vertigo. It's gorgeously filmed. Like, holy mm. crap, is it a good-looking movie. The score is astounding. Kim Novak is great. James Stewart is great. The acting is all great. Uh, the story structure is weird. Mm-hmm. And this is Hitchcock. He broke story structure rules a lot. Uh, but I don't think it's very effective in this one. I think mm. it's. I find the movie frustratingly disjointed. In a way that doesn't really feel like it's organic, it actually feels kind of forced to me a lot of the time. Um, I I find the actual plot to be too distracting because the plot, when you actually look at the plot, plot when all is revealed, it, it makes no sense, mm. and not even like a, in a fun way. In a why would anyone think this would work? <laughs> what in God? How? unbelievably weird would you have to be to even conceive of this scheme and yet it's all based on this and we're supposed to like find the emotional reality of it i find that 
them those two things to be at odds, yeah, which is the, frustrating. Uh, well, I talked about how Spellbound has this sort of dreamlike quality. But to that's it. at least and, literal, you know? And, yeah, like, it's that's, literally that's dreams. Part, it's part of the plot, and yeah, yeah. we actually get to see a dream on, on screen. And Spellbound, mm. uh, Vertigo is the dream. And yeah. it's it's wandering around in the dark recesses of a human psyche. Yeah. Uh, I would compare it to The Shining in that regard. Uh, the Shining is another film where all of the action takes place dead center. True. There's a lot of zooms through like a lot of empty corridors. Mm-hmm. And it is about, uh, if you look at The Shining in a certain way, wandering around within the uh, psych- psychosis, like the psychic part of a brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you think of the, the hotel as like the thinking part of a ghost. No, no, I get it. Uh, and, yeah. and, and we've had this conversation. Yeah. I agree with you on Shining, yeah. definitely. I feel, um, but I, that's, that's the, the vibe I'm getting from something like Vertigo. Yeah. I feel like we're wandering through this kind of dreamscape. The, the difference is that where I think, the, the logic doesn't fit together in a story way. And I think that's okay. Well, I, I'm not saying it's not okay. I just don't think it necessarily works here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the case of The Shining, you can still appreciate the text, even if you're not picking up on all of that hidden depth. Or right. all of that, mm. all of those alternate perceptions that there's you can, a, a, there's some surface level scares that, that, that are still get to you. Well, yeah, yeah. It's just it's you can, the story is still hmm. followable and makes sense and is engaging on its own, so that you want to search through the text further. For me, that's not the case with Vertigo. Hmm. For me, I find the surface elements of Vertigo kind of mind numbing. Actually, I don't <laughs> they, they don't really work for me, and so um, I don't really want to delve. Uh, it's very pretentious, and you're right; that's not inherently a bad thing. But I think. I'm. I don't feel as rewarded by those resolves because I don't actually enjoy the movie before I get to the pretense. Okay. Uh, and the pretense doesn't really make the movie stronger. It actually makes me feel. It makes me feel unclean, but not in a good way. Not unlike uh, the movie wanted me to feel dirty, uh, but in a. Uh, here's how Hitchcock thinks about blonde women, huh? Hmm. Um. I don't know if I wanted that. <laughs> and I feel as though it, it's 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 very illuminating and mm. that's very fascinating and one could argue that that makes it great and that's totally a reasonable way to go. And I think that's that's fine. Uh but for me um yeah, it never quite clicks. It never quite clicks. I've seen it multiple times and I respect it and I appreciate the craft that goes into it and I can tell how personal it is to Hitchcock. Uh, but yeah, for me, it, it's never really fired on all cylinders for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day I'll finally watch it again. I'll go, oh, oh, I okay. Now I yeah, now yeah. now it's my favorite movie. Maybe this, that's happened before, yeah. but I, I've, I've tried it multiple times, yeah, and this one just never really connected to me. There, there's something to be said for um, for the difficult pleasure. Not not the simple pleasure, not the Great. not the creature comfort, but the one that you really have to work for. And I feel yeah. that's true of like great literature. Yeah. Sometimes you encounter a book that is like so difficult and opaque, you have to sort of force yourself through several times to really appreciate it. Sure. But once you do, good God, is it satisfying? Well, that's how I felt about last year at Marion Bad, for example. Yeah, that one felt yeah, that, rewarding to me. Yeah, for, after, after the richness of it. Yeah, yeah. repeating and repeating and repeating. Well, because and in that one, there isn't. And, that one's okay because uh, yeah, okay, there isn't really a surface level plot to crack down on. Like I just. Mm. just described with the shining of vertigo uh but there's no pretense towards it there's no Mm. attempt to make it uh superficial Mm. it's all connections that you make in your brain and as a result it's all valid um i love that movie uh but i digress um all right i got one left and you got one left Mm. i'm curious if it's the same film because again i didn't have a lot of headshots Rear Window is, Mm. i think one of the best movies of all time and here's a movie that i think has some deep flaws but i'm also 
absolutely fascinated by it every single time I watch it. It is <laughs> so gorgeous and so weird and so beautifully acted by some people. Uh, it's Psycho. It, Psycho is my number one. I thought it um, might be. Yeah. Yeah, Psycho, uh, everybody knows the story. Well, like if, if you know about Hitchcock, you know the story of Psycho. Um, yeah. He was looking for a big hit after North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he was looking for something different. He yeah, doing the do, same shtick over and over again. And yeah. uh, so he decided to do something uh, just downright sleazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to make... Sexual yeah, and violent. More, more and or less a sex film. And uh, in, indeed, to make the film look cheap, he shot with his TV crew. Yeah, from Albert uh, Hitchcock yeah. Presents. Yeah, so, yeah and, uh, and it's about um, a, a young woman, Marion Crane, who steals a bunch of money and skips town, uh, feels bad about it, but uh, gets lost on the way back and stops at a motel where she meets a grisly fate. And uh, that's uh, the story I'm going to tell you. Yeah, uh, well, the other thing you need to say yeah. is that at the motel, she does meet a young man who's running the motel mm. uh, named Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, who at the time was a teen heartthrob. He mm. was uh, he was not... A creepy guy, but there's there's something really creepy about this guy. And yeah, he talks about his mother a lot. And his mother is yeah. up in the window of the house, looking out over them, and mm-hmm. yeah. So there's this like presence hanging over yeah. them. There's a lot of ghostly things. I, going I on. talked about how uh, I think Robert Walker is one of the great movie villains, and I think that's fair to say about mm-hmm. uh, Norman Bates as well. Mm-hmm. But what I will say about Anthony Perkins is psycho. I think he gives one of the great movie performances. <laughs> That's like maybe fair. That's maybe fair, yeah. top five. Like it's really he is on an entirely different level in Psycho. Mm. Every single movement feels natural but incredibly calculated. Every single detail of his performance, once you know what's actually going on in the movie, and it's a famous twist, but we won't ruin it for you in case, because I know some people still have managed not to have it ruined, and why would we ruin that for you? Um, he, uh, uh, every single decision he makes in that movie ties into something. It is relevant, it is clever, it is twisted, it is uh, natural. Mm-hmm. He has thought out that character. So beautifully. It was so much sympathy and humor and... A lot of, like, innocence and naivete is going on in in the character. There's a lot of characters who have a sort of a notorious reputation uh, and they're played as villains or they're played... Or even they're even played overly sympathetic, you know? Like, oh, please pity me. I am the monster, that kind of thing. Uh... He's he's an all he's all in one package. He's a complete human being mm-hmm. who is going through some weird shit. Uh, the movie it quite famously broke a lot of the rules of cinematic convention. Uh, one hand, it showed a flushing toilet. That was that was scandalous. At that the was time. that was yeah. seen as really outre. Like that was not done. Uh, also, shockingly horrifying violence and like a protagonist who gets killed like early on in the movie and like all of these incredible like you know aspects of like psychology that weren't being used uh, very well in fiction mm-hmm. and um, and to be fair, the, the movie's legacy of how it handles a lot of what Norman Bates is going through again without going into detail, mm-hmm. not great. A lot of people well, took away, you know, something very superficial from it. Yeah, and the it uh, created some bad 
parallels. The, yeah. the, the biggest criticism of the movie, and it's one most of the fans of the movie have, is it overexplains its ending. We kind yeah. of understand what was going on, and there's this very long sequence at the end where uh, a shrink that we'd never seen before. A brand new character uh, just walks into the movie. Played by uh, the dude from Beyond Westworld. Um, <laughs> ah, yes. Who could forget? So, the dude from Beyond Westworld. Psycho Pish. Beyond Westworld is where it's at. Oh, the, the, I know the short-lived name. TV series. This is going to drive me nuts. Uh, I know his name. Um, <laughs> uh, his name is Simon Oakland. Simon uh, Oakland. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Simon Oakland plays the, good the actor, shrink. Way, Simon, Oakland. Uh, Simon is quite a good actor. Uh, but he has this very long monologue explaining exactly what happened and how his personality split. And it's unfortunate that that's the note the film kind of went out on. Because it sort of lingered over the mm-hmm. legacy of Psycho ever yeah. since. It was a big part of the sequels about the actual psychology of the character. So, Hitchcock mm-hmm. sometimes ran into structural problems because he wanted to do something different. and mm-hmm. But he still wanted it to be satisfying as a story. We talked about Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Where if you want, you could wrap Rebecca up at that scene in like the boathouse with Rebecca and, and Maxim de Winter. Uh, but the plot wouldn't be resolved. Mm-hmm. And at the end, you'd be like, oh, that's great. Wait a minute. There's a ton of shit they didn't explain, <laughs> and you'd be annoyed, and so you have to get to that. But then there's not, there's no real emotional story left. It's yeah. all plot, and that's kind of annoying. Uh, Psycho wraps up really, really beautifully, and I think nowadays you probably could cut all or most of that sort of falling action and explanation. However, I think the reason you could cut all of that off is because Psycho explained it. <laughs> At the yep. time, this was daring and weird and new, and a lot of people in the audience would have no idea what to make of it because it was dealing in psychological concepts which were at best vaguely understood. Hmm. And again, don't take your psychology from movies, but Psycho did have some explaining to do for people who probably wouldn't have been able to piece together everything very, very clearly and might take away even more of a misconception than they're left with in the actual movie. Um, so I think it was kind of necessary at the time. It just aged badly yeah. because now it's seen as completely superfluous because psycho made it clear. Uh, so I'm, I'm forgiving of it, but it is a problem. And it's the reason why it's not my number one, but psycho, uh, also does that thing that dial M for murder does in that we, we want Norman to get away with that. Yeah. We feel bad for Norman. And I feel like Hitchcock's tensest scene that he's ever filmed is in psycho with the car. car. It's it's not anything to do with like the, the murders or the violence or, you know, the cop finally cracking down. It's all about, can we dispose of something properly? And yeah, Yeah. there's, there's a bit with a car and uh, what's going to happen with the car and the car stops moving at one point. And the entire audience is on the edge of their seat saying, Oh, it should wait. What am I doing? We we don't, we don't want the killers to get away with this. Why would we want that? But we're so invested. We're completely invested in it. Yeah. And the way, the way Hitchcock so brilliantly pivoted the entire audience's sympathies Mm. towards the killers rather than the victim. It's really, really really brilliant. Um, There's a few just wonderfully uh, laid out, just scare moments. Yeah. Uh, Martin Balsam. The Martin, yeah, there's, oh. there's an over-the-head sequence at the top of a staircase that is just, like, still will make you jump to this day. Yeah, really e- weirdly put together. Even when, even when Gus Van Sant did it, it's like, oh, gosh, it startles yeah, it still you. Yes, it works. did it really well. Yeah. Um, um, if you want to see... I, I think Gus Van Sant's uh, remake is a very fascinating exper- experiment, and I think you should watch it. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I highly recommend yeah. that everybody see Gus Van Sant's movie, yeah. uh, knowing what it is and mm-hmm. what he tried to do, and consider how it doesn't function 
the way it did in 1960. Yeah, and I think that's the point. Mm. I think the idea is... We, yeah, we, it's if an we did experiment psycho- that failed, but it's still an interesting experiment. Yeah, experiments can be useful even if they fail. Yeah. And I think showing that Hitchcock's movies were more than just a set of storyboards is actually really useful. Mm. You know, you can't just take any actors and use the same set of storyboards and give them to any director and end up with the same movie. You won't. It won't happen. Hmm. Be the exact same script, and you will end up with a different film. Uh, and uh, yeah, I find it, I do. I agree. I think it's find it very, very fascinating. Uh, I'm. I've never a couple of things. Addendums to Psycho. Uh, I've never seen Psycho two and three. I need to get around to them. I heard they're quite oh. good. I'm very fond of Psycho four, <laughs> which is a, a mostly a prequel uh, starring Henry Thomas well, it's, as it's... a young as a young Norman Bates and, and um, Olivia Hussey as his mother and Olivia Hussey as his mother. Uh, very well put together, and Henry Thomas is every bit the actor Anthony Perkins is. He's really, really amazing in that movie. Uh, I will also say, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, I think Psycho has the greatest movie trailer ever made. Uh, Hitchcock was really good at this. He yeah. liked to introduce a movie rather than show footage from it. Yeah, he liked to tease. He did this uh, with The Birds as well, although to lesser effect. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the trailer for Psycho, it's quite long actually uh, it's longer than the typical trailer but it's alfred hitchcock walking and saying hello i'm alfred hitchcock he's on and he's on the set of psycho he's on the set of psycho he's on the, he's at the motel but he's not on the set he's at the motel mm-hmm. and what he's saying is something unspeakable happened yeah and he's walking you through the crime scenes mm-hmm. and he's just talking and it's all cleaned up now yeah. and, and he's like oh but you should have seen in this the room there was oh gosh and oh and the blood and Oh, I won't tell you yeah. anymore. Yeah, I can tell you what's behind this painting, but no, you couldn't handle it. Mm. <laughs> this is so fucking. But great. he's not threatening. He's he's sort yeah. of coy about it. It's, like, no, it's oh, very I could, playful. I could show you what you know. I'd better not show you now. Yeah, it's mm. so it's such a wonderful tease. Mm. It's telling you everything about the movie while telling you nothing about the movie, and it's getting you really stoked because it hits that like true crime vibe. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, just, I have to know what happened. I know it's monstrous, but what happened? For God's sake, tell me. Um, it's, it's such a playful, wonderful thing. And then it ends with a clip from the shower scene, except it's not a clip from the shower scene. That's a different actor. So that has <laughs> literally no footage from Psycho in it. It's, what an incredible trick he plays. Uh, that, the birds and pink flamingos are the only previews I can think of off the top of my head that don't show any footage from the actual film. Oh, that's interesting. I guess surely there's been other. Like, oh, I'm sure there uh, have. I feel like, like that's a te- that's... teasers. Um, I, yeah. I think, oh, teasers, uh, sure, yeah. but I think that's different. Like a full trailer, mm. that's pretty rare. Um, yeah, Pink Flamingos. They just interviewed oh, people that, who just left. What's the movie. that one great trailer from the '70s? It was like for like a double or triple feature, and it was just interviewing people who had just got out of this horror movie double feature, mm. and everyone's been like driven insane by the movies. Uh, it's really, really. <laughs> I, I would see what that. The hell it is. It's, it's like I dismember Mama or something like that. Mm. And some some sleazy trailer. It mm. used to be on the Forty uh, Second Street Forever disc. It's really great. Right. But yeah. an, an, another thing I appreciate about Psycho, we're talking about sort of the psychology of it and how well it's filmed. Um, I appreciate how trashy it is as yeah. well. Yeah. Because it, it's simultaneously r- unbelievably well made. It's grimy. But yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it feels really low rent and it yeah. feels kind of make, feels like a dirty movie in yeah. a lot of ways. And this is a, um, and this is a studio product. The, mm-hmm. It's been argued, I've said it and I stand by it, Psycho kind of cut film history in half. <laughs> like yeah, there's before uh, Psycho and after Psycho, at least in the American industry. Um, because before Psycho, there were rules. Hitchcock broke them all. 
And after that, people realize we don't have to stick to them and we can do anything we want in horror. We can do anything we want narratively and we can absolutely cater to the most prurient ideas and still come up with something a successful and be artistic. Uh, mm. I think horror movies would forever be different. It was came out mm. the same year as Peeping Tom, which has a lot of similarities and is very, very good. But it's not a Hitchcock movie, mm. so it's not why we're focusing on it now. Um, but Hitchcock is the one that made the bigger impact overall, I think. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's it's of course, huge. Um, and we can't mention Psycho without men- mentioning uh, the filmmaker that Hitchcock was ripping off. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> to get to something like it's Psycho. Tra- it's credit to be given. Uh, credit, cr- to be given cr- credit where credit is due. William Castle. Of course, yeah. I'm going to bring up any, any excuse to bring up William Castle. Yeah. Uh, William Castle was the one who was sort of like pushing the door open off on the side, trying to add these sort of like gimmicks and uh, matinee thrills mm-hmm. and sort of like trashy little kid fun to genre films. And uh, uh, mm. The Tingler came out the year before Psycho. Yeah. And... Uh, William Castle was trying to get people into theaters by saying things like, if if you see this movie and you die of fright, mm-hmm. we'll pay your insurance. That kind of thing. Like, yeah. We'll insure you in case you die. And Hitchcock, not one to be one-upped, mm. was just like, you know, no one will be admitted to the theater mm. after the film has begun, but, which was very different. So Hitchcock, in essentially ripping off William Cal- Castle's gimmicks, uh, also pioneered the notion of getting to the movie on time. This was uh, not a thing. It wasn't a thing. Before Psycho came out, uh, posted showtimes weren't that common. Yeah, or at uh, least they weren't considered all that important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, just, you would go to the theater the, and you could the, just the walk project- in the middle of a movie. And the it would projector say, would, be be run- would be running all day long and uh, they would show you know cartoons, newsreels, and two different features, the A feature and the B feature. Yeah. And uh, you might still hear the phrase, this is where we came in. That means this. you came into a movie, you waited for the entire cycle to go through, and then you saw the first part of the movie later. Yeah. This is where we came. We came in at this part of the movie, now yeah. we can leave. You watched it out of order. Uh, and that's the way, that was common uh, ways to con- uh, consume film. It's also been said that that's one of the reasons why screenplays use the character names more often than we do in real life. Mm. I talk to Whitney all the time. I hardly ever call him Whitney. Yeah, we Like, hey, Whit- you, you know Whitney, the thing about, like, it's, why would I do that? It's hey, so weird, like, him. yeah, but pay, yeah. pay attention to how often you address your, your significant other or your spouse by their first name. Yeah, it's, it's if you're it's, calling yeah. them into the room, maybe, or if you're saying hi, yeah. but once we know who I'm addressing right now in conversation, Conversation. I don't need to keep saying your name. Yeah. It's weird if I do, but it happens all the time in screenplays. And the reason why it's kind of grandfathered in because people would walk in all the time and not know who the fuck anyone was. Right. So you would constantly say their names just so everyone in the audience was grounded. Yeah, even even halfway through a movie. Yeah, yeah. So the idea yeah. of because Psycho, because you kind of need to see Psycho in order for it to have the maximum impact. They said we will not seat anybody in the movie. You know, at any at just any old time. Mm. So you had to get on time to see Psycho, and then it became normalized that you just yeah, so, see the movie from beginning to end, don't you? So yeah, people actually had to start going to movies on yeah. time for once, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that that became industry norm after mm. that. Uh, not like right, not overnight. No, no, no but, but yeah, like it, it started sort of, it started yeah. a trend, and uh, and and I do also want to give a little bit of credit because you you credited William Castle for mm. inspiring Psycho. Uh, another movie that was a big influence on Psycho was Lady Diabolique. Uh, by the mm. great Henri Georges Clouseau, uh, which is uh, a Henri great George... film noir with a really, mm. uh, also very very sleazy. It's a Hon- very yeah, very yeah. sleazy film. Hon- but Henri Georges Clouseau, though, cl- first of all, he classes it up, and uh, yeah. also Henri Georges Clouseau is freaking awesome, uh, amazing. Yeah. And if you've never mm. seen the original, the remake is the remake. See the original, Lady Diabolique. 
Um, if you know nothing about it, you're gonna you're in for a fucking treat. But mm-hmm. it's very Hitchcockian. Apparently, Hitchcock was just like, hey. <laughs> uh, so and, um, and you you knew that Hitch, Hitchcock was also a cinephile. He's oh, like yeah. watching other people's movies. Yeah, he's very interested. He's he's very influenced by other people. I, I yeah. just would love to see Hitchcock getting the Percepto uh, jolt <laughs> while watching the Tingler. Like he probably went to the theater. Yeah, I'm going to watch another monster movie. Let's see what they did. Oh dear my oh my good like I love oh, my, like, <laughs> yeah, oh, my bottom. My <laughs> bottom. This is very clever. <laughs> I'd love to think of Hitchcock watching The Tingler. That would be amazing. Anyway, that is it uh, uh, for our picks of the best Hitchcock movies. Uh, real fast, here's here are the top ten lists as they were. Uh, Whitney's top ten list was Lifeboat, Dial M for Murder, North by Northwest, Suspicion, Spellbound, Rebecca, Rope, Rear Window, Vertigo, and Psycho. And mine, and again, these are more my favorites than, uh, than anything else. And there's a few I left off because, you know, he's a bit more famous. Um... Mine were Jamaica Inn, Shadow of a Doubt, The Lady Vanishes, Under Capricorn, Strangers on a Train, The Original, The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934, I believe, The Trouble with Harry, Family Plot, Psycho, and Rear Window. Uh, Whitney, um, obviously, you know, we could go through his whole filmography if we wanted to, but is there are there any other films that you just couldn't make room for you want to give a quick shout out to? Uh, I, I have nothing against Strangers on a Train. That could have easily yeah. have been on my list. Um but yeah, unfortunately, I, I feel underwatched. So okay. uh, the, there's there's movies of his that I simply don't like. Uh, like I'm not very fond of Marnie. Uh, Marnie's Marnie yeah. is Marnie is weird and toxic. Yeah, I've, I've seen. Yeah. I've, I've, Marnie is Marnie's Marnie is really bad psychology. <laughs> yeah, for Marnie, sure. Like, um, it, it's aiming for something, but the, it, it, um, it does it handles it badly. Yeah. I I even though the whole, the movie as a whole is is sort of plain, but I adore the climax of Torn Curtain. Torn uh, Curtain is un- <laughs> I, I almost put it on here. Right. It's a little it's it's too slow for too long, but there's like. Three or four highlights in Torn Curtain that are mm-hmm. as suspenseful as anything Hitchcock ever did. Yeah, the, There's a the, bus chase in Torn Curtain that is one of the most suspenseful things I've ever seen. Yeah, the, the scene at the chalkboard is really oh, is, so is, is, is a really yeah. wonderful scene. Yeah, there's a great scene in that movie that just shows how difficult it is to murder someone. Like, <laughs> like it's to, not easy. It's actually make, really hard to murder someone. To actually make them dead. Yeah, it's really, really tricky. Yeah, anything else come to mind or... Uh, uh, that's yeah. all I'll say okay. for now. Yeah. Uh, real, real fast, a few things that I'm 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 quite fond of that I didn't make room for. Uh, the Lodger, a story of the London fog. It's a, s- a silent thriller. Alfred Hitchcock did. It's very uh, very much inspired by the Jack the Ripper killings. Hmm. Uh, I haven't seen it recently enough. I think it might have made my list, but I haven't seen it in a long, long time. But it's really atmospheric and great. Um, let's see. Uh, the Thirty Nine Steps is kind of the original wrong man thriller, um, and it still plays really, really great. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Foreign Correspondent is a movie that I didn't used to be super fond of, but when we rewatched it for our show, Only the Best on on uh, Patreon, uh, I found myself really taken in by uh, just how topical it was. Okay. And I think it handles. I think it manages to be topical and thrilling and find a really good balance. So I'm actually just uh, I'm a much bigger fan of that movie than I used to be. Uh, Lifeboat almost made my list as well. Saboteur is a lot of fun, even though it's a little formulaic. But Dorothy Parker co-wrote that one, so it's got a little fun, little, a lot of <laughs> nice. fun little weird bits. Notorious is brilliant, and if I was doing just the best, it would have made my list. But again, hopefully you know to see Notorious, it's great. Um, let me see. To Catch a Thief is a lot of fun. It's a little fluffy. Uh, you know, doesn't quite. Uh, uh, it feels more like a day at the beach than uh, than anything else. But it's a it's a really really good time. Uh, the Birds. 
Almost made time for the birds. It is a bit of a cliche, but it's also very, very daring. And yeah. um, it's a movie that feels like it happens because it happens because yeah. like it was because like the audience showed up. Yeah, like that's because that's why all the birds attack is because you're here watching this. The, the, There's something really creepy about that. The, the movie yeah. I would play in a double feature with the birds is Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Yeah, you uh, mentioned this in, before. In, yeah. yeah, because I, I rewatched The Evil Dead, and that that's a movie about a man being attacked by the movie itself. Like yeah. it's about a, a genre is killing a man. And I feel like that's what the birds. And that's is. what like, the birds like, is. These yeah. characters have shown up. Something needs to happen. I don't know. Fucking birds. Like that's kind of the yeah. movie. It's, <laughs> it's really great. Uh, to never <laughs> see the sequel. The sequel is awful. That should have been the title. I don't know. Fucking birds. <laughs> uh, and then one more. I almost picked this one. Uh, but if you want to talk about sleazy, mm. uh, Alfred Hitchcock, he did his, his one R-rated movie uh, was Frenzy, which is a serial killer story that is just absolute. Mm. It's violent. It's terrible. It, it should come with a content warning. Bad things happen in that movie. But uh, they're not romanticized. They're shown as being horrible. Um uh, the one problem with Frenzy is that the actual protagonist, the wrong man who's like accused of being a serial killer, he's a piece of shit. I don't want to follow him. I don't care about him. I don't care. It, I don't care if he succeeds in his goals. I want the bad guy caught, but I also kind of want that guy arrested because he's a dick. Like that's the problem with Frenzy. Is just the the main character is just not very interesting. But uh, there's some amazing uh, uh, creepy bits in there. There's another bit, not unlike Psycho, where. Uh, you're almost sympathizing with the killer because they're trying so hard to get a piece of evidence back and things go so badly for them <laughs> that it becomes comical. But this guy's a monster. Like, Frenzy is a horror movie. Frenzy mm. is a giallo, basically, almost. Uh, it's really, really close. Um, but uh, it's certainly really, 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 really good. But damn, is it dark. Anyway, that is it for the Iron List this uh, this month. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, who voted. Uh, next month, it's October. It's a time for ghosts and goblins. Uh, so we're focusing all of our uh, options for the Patreon on horror-related stuff, just for fun, because we like it. Uh, so uh, if you head on over to Patreon, your options for next month's poll are horror remakes, the best horror remakes ever made, uh, the best horror comedies, uh, which varies from really, really scary movies that are funny to light movies with supernatural events, uh, movies about serial killers, uh, and uh, sleepover horror, which we're talking about, like more like horror for kids, yeah, horror for uh, families, uh, horror for like twelve and under, yeah, yeah. G- gateway horror movies. Like yours, this might be a little scary, or it's got scary elements to mm. it. But um, yeah, movie horror that anyone can enjoy, regardless of age, I think. Um, and it's something that I think is sometimes neglected or not seen as like real horror, but mm. when you're a kid, it is. It, it counts. Yeah. Um, so uh, those are all your options. Uh, head on over to Patreon, and you can vote. Uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network we have a lot of exclusive shows on there some of which we talked about on our program only the best we review uh, every single best picture nominee uh, in history uh, that the episode is like about probably gonna be about a week late on that this month uh, just because it's been a really really busy September but we're gonna get on that right away hmm. um, but we have commentary tracks we have uh, shows about Star Trek Batman uh, and uh, we do a monthly uh, hangout with our top tier patrons uh, the works uh, and of course you can vote for this and some of our other shows as well 
all the time. Uh, we are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. If you want to talk about anything we discussed on this uh, month's episode of The Iron List or anything else you want to talk about, we have an email address, and we might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. That email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. box if you want to send us a snail mail? Send us a yeah physical letter. We like getting those, too. Just write to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Once again, we hope you enjoy the movies. And until next time, that's the list. Okay.